0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Magnum Talks TV. I am Lee. I am here. I am joined by Spencer. Spencer! Hey, the people. Hey, everybody. Spencer, we're back. We have done Game of Thrones and the go Guy Questions podcast. We have done uh, Chernobyl. We have done Succession. We have done Mandalorian. We've been all over the place, and now we are starting a brand new series that you and I are going to review the very popular Netflix adap- adaption uh, of the 1983 book, The Queen's Gambit. Spencer. How much of this show have you watched? How much have you heard about? And do you have any thoughts as we go into reviewing the miniseries?
1: Lee, as you well know, I'm a person that just lives and thrives in authenticity. So I always, professionally, in life, think it best to take it one step at a time so to give you and our audience an authentic kind of reaction. I've watched one episode in and I'm intending to just keep at that pace as we go through.
0: Now, have you heard like the sort of rumblings about this show in the cultural zeitgeist? Because it has gotten very popular
1: my sister sent me a goddamn chess set that gives you a bit of a hint about what the cultural rumblings have been for this show
0: yeah it's big um it's gotten very big we're a little late to the party i would say it debuted a couple months ago but i mean there's you know it's still like number three or number four on uh netflix's most popular uh or most streamed show list right now so it's still getting a lot of buzz a lot of people watching it and i believe it's seven episodes i believe that's what we get We are going to review it, as we do, here on the Mangum Talks podcast channel. Mangum Talks TV, we're going to do episode by episode. We're going to start with episode one today, titled Openings. We will jump into our segments. Um, After a recap, our segments, our best line of the episode, Spencer's Wikipedia spiral of the episode. That's making a comeback. And then we're also going to talk a little best scene. Um, Spencer and I have agreed that... You know the way this story is told in this in queen's gambit it probably makes sense to do a best scene so we're gonna we're gonna dip our toe into the water at best scene but before we do that spencer we like to plug another little show you do called mangum reads do you have a plug for mangum reads today
1: mangum reads right now has been focusing on our co-show the cousin of mangum reads pottering around as we've been going through the fourth book of the harry potter series Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, I st- we're only a few chapters in, I've got no idea what a Goblet of Fire is, it makes for a pretty picture on the cover, but in our chapter by chapter recap we get an exploration of the knowledge and background and qu- rapid summaries of Sarah, my utter ignorance to the series despite all popular cultural zeitgeist, and B.J. Snark, forming a fun combination that we hope everybody enjoys listening to.
0: It's great, check out Pottery and Ryan. I've said before it's the best thing done on this podcast channel. I love it. I think it's a great, well-produced podcast. Check it out. Second best thing we've ever done on the podcast is this episode right here. Right here, Spencer. It's going to be high quality. Reviewing Queen's Gambit. But before we we really jump into the recap, and I do have a little bit of history on the show and on the book. Before we do that, I want to set a perspective um, for how each of us are going into this review of the show. So answer me two questions, Spencer. One, do you play chess? And tell us a little, if you do, tell us a little bit of history about, you know, your your experience playing chess. And two, do you know of or have you ever read the book, The Queen's Gambit by Walter Tevis?
1: Right, well, so start let's, with let's number do, one. Let's do each of these in turn. So I'll, I'll answer yep. and then you answer for the first question. Sure. Uh, for, first question. I am one of those people that very much knows the rules of chess, even knows a couple openings. But I've never played more than casually with a couple friends, and probably the last game I I played against a human is going on ten years ago. So that's kind of my background with chess. Know perfectly how to play. Probably played maybe I don't know thirty or forty games of chess in my entire life. But I've had a long gap away, even from that limited exposure to the sport. Okay,
0: so for me, I know how to play chess. I know, like you, like you, I know kind of what you're supposed to do to open. You know, a couple openings, you know, kind of a couple openings that I think people do and we'll get into these uh, as we go into the, you know, the show and we talk about some of the moves that are chronicled on the show. But I've never really learned like, okay, here's how you play out, you know, an entire set of moves to try to win. And so what I've always done when I played chess is, okay, you know, I'm moving, you know queen's pawn to four right or you know whatever it is i have to i have to kind of in my mind i try to game out every single scenario with every single move because i don't know enough to know like okay when the board's set up this way there's four possible variations here's what they are i'd ever learned all that so i have to game it out every single time so it's basically like i'm recreating the wheel every single time i play chess which means that i am my chess games take two hours to play it's I, I take fucking forever and they're miserable for me because I have to do I have to spend so much mental energy to play. So um, I'm guessing that a lot of people uh, are in the boat that I'm in. And I think that the show hopefully uh, exposes them to like, OK, well, you can spend a little bit of time learning certain openings and certain variations on those openings. And maybe that'll save you a little mental energy when you're trying to play.
1: It is very much a game which benefits from getting a little bit of training on about how it works. This isn't just something that you just kind of just pick up and play. If you actually take a, a couple lessons, learn from somebody that really knows how to play kind of well, it becomes a much more fun game from what I've heard. Yeah, I've me too. I've never really had that. And so like you, it gets to be kind of like a tedious exercise of where I just feel constantly behind the ball and I'm having to plan out all my strategies as I go, which doesn't make for it as much fun in the moment as it probably should be
0: exactly like so when people say you know lee do you want to play chess it's always like all right do i have two hours and am i willing to be completely mentally exhausted at the end of this exercise because that's <laughs> what it's or i just lose like very quickly i've done that too right. where i'm like yeah sure i'll play and then i just like i just get super aggressive so that either i win or they win right away and then it's over
1: yeah n- n- not that long ago got, a friend of mine said hey spencer would like to play chess and my literal response is what is monopoly not available It's like, that was where my mind was going for the response to the game, which perhaps the show will put me on a different foot.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, second question. What do you know of and and or have you read the book by Walter Tevis, The Queen's Gambit?
1: No, and it's fun. Walter Tevis is really one of the examples of those authors of where I know his works. I love the adaptations of his works in the movies. Could not have picked the guy's name out of a lineup in terms of background with him. He's done some great stuff now that I've read a little bit about him, but Queen's Gambit is not one that I have either read or knew anything about before this. But things like, things of his like The Hustler, Color of Money, The Man Who Fell to Earth, great books that have had great at mixed level of adaptations, but generally great ab- adaptations.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll do a little bit of background on the book. And, um, you know, then we can jump into the recap. So this show is based, as I mentioned, on the 1983 book by Walter Tevis called the Queen's Gambit. It is a work of fiction. A lot of people watching this show had the question. It's one of the most like Googled questions about the show. Is this real? Because it kind of seems like a biopic, a historical biopic.
1: It's really. It falls in that classic genre of historical fiction of where if whenever they mention another character by name, that's not outside of somebody they will meet. They are a real person. Like if they're discussing chess books or things like that, it's a real chess book. They're discussing real players out there, real players. But everybody we meet, fictional
0: right yeah so that's the answer right is that no it is not it is not historical fiction um beth Harmon, not a real person however um walter tevis did say that the character of beth Harmon was sort of an amalgamation and a tribute to quote brainy women that he's met or he has followed in his life so it's kind of one of those things where it's like no it's not it's not real but He did kind of base some of the individual scenes or individual plot points on women who were in the chess scene in the 50s 60s and 70s so it's not it's not completely a hundred percent a fictional world
1: yeah i heard it described before is a rarely seen biopic on a female on a female genius which was an interesting way of putting it is that i was kind of thinking about it is that huh there aren't really that many stories where the main character is just a a a woman genius um It is fiction, but it's an interesting perspective on, I suppose, what would have happened to the world of chess or the world around her if someone like this had emerged during that particular era and society had been accommodating enough to allow her to demonstrate her brilliance.
0: What would have happened if Bobby Fischer was a girl? Um, And was (laughs) hopefully
1: not anti-Semitic.
0: Yeah, he had a lot of problems. The book was published by Random House. It was received a positive reviews. This is not an example of one of those books that was published and... You know, like The Great Gatsby, for instance, that, like, you know, was published and, like, people, you know, was not received to positive reviews. And then, like, later on, it it caught fire, right? This was not that. Like, it was released and it was on the New York Times bestseller list. It wasn't, like, the most popular book of the year or anything, but it it, it had pretty positive reviews. It sold fairly well. Tevis died a year after the publication of the book from lung cancer. Tevis was a heavy smoker and drinker. Um, he was a self-admitted alcoholic who got um, sober in Alcoholics Anonymous in the 1970s. This becomes important later. Uh, I don't say that just to blow up the man's background, but um, I think his perspective as an alcoholic is important in how he wrote the book and how it was adapted in this mini-series. He also wrote other books, uh, which you mentioned, that were adapted to the screen. I think the one that most people are gonna know uh, the most is Color of Money, probably. Um, There were two other attempts to adapt this book, one immediately after the publication in 1983 that fell through after Tevis' death. And again in 1992 when a fairly wealthy producer uh, bought the rights to it, but uh, they let those rights lap and ultimately nothing came of that effort. Netflix um, was pitched the show and green, interesting enough, greenlit the show for production, I think in March of 2019, Spencer? And it came, it came out in like October of 2020. So they filmed this thing and got it up and running very, very quick, uh, which I, f- I found that timeline to be really impressive.
1: It, it was interesting to read about the development hell the show is in. It's that one of the two current creators, Alan Scott, he was the one who actually bought the rights back in 1992. Um, but he had like two different directors kind of back out on him early on. And then the third director that he named, did you hear who that was? Uh, no. Heath Ledger.
0: Right oh, I did hear that. Yeah, yeah. How about that?
1: It was going to be his directorial debut right before, and then he died, and then the show again fell into development hell. So yeah, this one had a long road to get to the screen, but um, yeah, I'm glad they finally got it out. The other co-creator of the show is um, Scott Frank. Did you ever see a Godless? come came out a couple years ago on uh, Netflix. Sure did. Yeah, that was his brainchild, which, you know, I didn't think it was as good as everybody was raving about, but it was still entertaining, and Jeff Daniels knocked it out of the park with it.
0: Yeah, as he does, Jeff Daniels, Daniels, American Treasure. Um, But yeah, you know, this is another example of one of those instances where I just shouldn't be a Hollywood producer for a lot of reasons. But like the main reason is that if you if I'm working for Netflix, right, I'm like VP of creative at Netflix and they come in and they say, hey, we've got this show we want to do based on a 1983 book about a fictional chess champion from the 1960s. It's going to be great. Trust me.
1: Set in, you know, semi-suburban Kentucky.
0: Uh, that's gonna be a hard no from Lee. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: it was a tough enough sell for this podcast. Think where we've gone previously. We've been discussing, you know, one of the greatest space operas of all time. We've been going through one of the greatest modern fantasy series. We went through one of the most disastrous events in, you know, U.S. Hist- uh, world history in terms of a, a major nuclear meltdown. And then I proposed, hey, let's talk about small town chess.
0: Yeah, but I'm glad we're doing it. Uh, And my number one reason I'm glad we're doing it is not that the show is in the cultural zeitgeist. It's not that I really like the show, although I did. It's not that I think there's a lot of great things to talk about because I think there are. My favorite reason for doing this and why I when Spencer pitched it, I thought about it for a while and said, you know what? Let's do it is the segment Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the Week, because I think. I could be wrong here, Spencer, but I think this is going to give you so much meat on that segment, the meat on that bone for that segment, that I think there's going to be episodes where I have to pull you out of the abyss because history of chess, strategy of chess, um, you know, uh, the the role of this um, this book and this mini series in the popularity of chess. There's so many places you can go with it.
1: Uh, Well, I hope you're ready for frickin' Sanskrit, because we're starting there with this first episode.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's what I'm looking for. All right, well, I think we can uh, get started on the recap. Anything else you want to talk about generally about the book, the series, um, as a means of an introduction before we jump into the episode?
1: No, I think we've set the floor. Let's actually get into the meat of it.
0: Great. Uh, Queen's Gambit is a story about a prodigy chess player, uh, female Beth Harmon. The story starts with Beth in the dark, in a bathtub. Uh, bathtub with someone knocking at the door with a wake up call. Beth Throne. Go ahead.
1: So, out of curiosity on this point, did you know the the lead actress uh, before this show? Have you ever seen her or anything else?
0: I did not. No.
1: Anna Taylor Joy. Uh, she's been in a few things I've seen. She's actually mostly, I'm familiar with her from the horror genre. So, it's a bit of a change of pace for her, but apparently she's done some period piece work before. But yeah, she's delightful. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um... And there was another actress that I was thinking should have done this, Um, Spencer. How great would it? And and, now this actress does a good job. I'm not at all poo-pooing her. She she knocked it out of park, I think, with this role. But how great would it have been if Emma Stone did this role?
1: You know, there's there's kind of Emma Stone vibes attached to this, aren't there?
0: Uh huh. Absolutely. When I was watching, first off, she kind of the actress actually looks like her, which is why I made the connection. But i was like man emma stone would be really solid in this role i think but you know we we got this actress and she does a good job uh as i mentioned the story starts with with beth waking up in a a bathtub someone knocking at the door um my first thought here was that she was clearly asleep in this bathtub um and uh lu- you know lucky she didn't die there uh, a lot of people have have died falling asleep in the bathtub <laughs> Um, all of our, our, our millions of listeners out there, a uh, little PSA from your friend Lee, don't fall asleep <laughs> in a bathtub. Never fall asleep in a bathtub. Bad idea. Now, particularly
1: um, when there's apparently a very luxurious bed in her, I think this is a French hotel. Is that where we start? That's you know, it, just walking distance around the room the other way. Apparently somebody in there, too.
0: It's her apartment in France, but yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's certainly a very big, luxurious room. She has no business sleeping in the damn bathtub. She's getting a wake-up call. Beth throws open the curtains of the hotel room, and we see it's Paris in 1967. The hotel room has alcohol bottles strewn all over it. Beth puts on a dress. Uh, she's got runny makeup. She takes a few nondescript pills, chases it with an airplane bottle of liquor, and leaves the hotel room to jump in an elevator. Not a good not a good first scene, Spencer, for our girl Beth Harmon. <laughs> not a solid space for her to be in.
1: No, she is dripping wet on the carpet as she greets that door to that little surprise maitre d' kind of shit. Um, but she's soldiering out. We, at this point, we don't know really who she is or where she's going. She's just apparently very late to a very important date.
0: Yep. On the elevator, Beth sees a little girl. That seems, that seems to unnerve her. I think that's an yeah. important point. Um, she gets off the elevator, races through the hallway, cussing to herself. She eventually opens a door and is met by a bunch of paparazzi, click, 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 cameras everywhere. She walks up to a chess table with a very stern-looking man sitting at it. Beth apologizes, shakes the man's hand, and sits down. That man, Spencer, is Vasily Borogov, a Russian chess champion. And that is our opening scene.
1: That, I, I, excellent casting on that guy Because I didn't even know who he was But I just assumed Okay This man is Russian This man has probably no sense of humor But he is here to play And be professional about it
0: Oh oh Sorry if that wasn't clear The the fictional character Is Vasily Borgov, A Russian chess champion I don't know who the actor is
1: I think the actor. I looked him up, I think the actor actually Polish, but they do a very good job. He does a very good job uh, sitting into this role for like the three seconds that I see of him right now.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm just boy. Spoiler alert here for everybody. Spencer earmuffs if you don't want to hear it. Vasily Borgoff, the character who, the guy who plays Vasily Borgoff, should win the Emmy. He's the best acted character of the series in my opinion. Uh, he I'm to he see he, that. he drips like Russia when he is, <laughs> he is in these scenes. Man, he's very solid. Um, we cut to a flashback and maybe that's even a misnomer to say cut to a flashback because I believe the rest of the episode is a flashback um, I point. think that's yeah. all we get and you know uh, what was the name of this uh, lead actress for Beth Harmon against Spencer uh,
1: Anna Taylor Joy oh, Anna- actually at this point it's Anna Taylor Joy but then we for the rest of the episode it's a uh, young girl
0: see that's the point I wanted to make Anna Taylor-Joy, I believe, is listed as the lead actress of this. And I'm sure we'll get Emmy consideration. But for my money, if you aren't even in the first episode of the series, <laughs> you're not a lead actress.
1: Fair point. <laughs> Fair point. You haven't watched in advance. When does she reappear? Because it seems like if we're going to spend a lot of time with her childhood, it could be a while.
0: We get a lot of flashbacks in this show. a, a awful lot. And probably more... So, the story is told through flashbacks in a way that... Um, there are more flashbacks in this than I can remember of a show in a long time. Um, Maybe you maybe have to go back to something like John Adams to see storytelling where flashbacks (laughs) are so important because it it is like 50% of the show. Um, Anyway, we, in that flashback, we get a all, uh, we get a flashback that really solidifies to me. that this is a story about one person, not about chess or a tournament. It's about Beth Harmon. And the reason for this is the flashback is a car wreck with a young Beth Harmon standing on a bridge, the police are looking on to her standing on the bridge and then two cars that are completely piled up. And the police say something like, um, paraphrasing here, not a scratch on her. She's lucky. And the, the other policeman responds, I imagine she won't see it that way. So, uh, indication right there that something traumatic has happened to this young girl. Uh, later on, we see that she became an orphan after the crash. Um, yeah. The police officer says uh, that her dad was gone. A hey, Here's a quote for you, Spencer. Woo! Doozy of a quote. Put it on a bumper sticker. A victim of a carefree life.
1: Yeah, that was a really... Yeah, that was a rough line. She was, at, was she in the room when they even said that or something? I'm trying to remember.
0: Nah, they were, I think they were talking um, on that bridge, okay. actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, go ahead.
1: Yeah, two things there... Um, yeah I think I think what they they're, they're discussing her like in the orphanage like when she's coming to the orphanage like pondering where her parents are but for that bridge in particular if you look in the background next to the two wrecked cars there's her mom covered in a cloth yep. and she's just standing there next to her the two police officers just arm crossed looking on her it's like guys put get, her in the car get her, get her away from that
0: there. yeah exactly i had the same thought uh, it seems like they just didn't know what to do they were completely they were- but as a man, Spencer, who is a, who can turn a phrase? I mean, we have established this on Mangum Talks TV. You are a phrase turner indeed. Victim of a carefree life? That's a strong one, right? Where how would you rate that one? I got it at a nine.
1: That is an incredibly euphemistic way of that person saying what they actually feel. That that is a really well phrased phrase.
0: Yeah, it's it's up there. Um in the orphanage, she's um introduced to Mrs. Lonsdale, Mrs. Ferguson. These are characters that We'll kind of come in and out of scenes as we go forward. As the introductions are taking place, we hear a young woman shout, you're all a bunch of fucking cocksuckers.
1: Welcome. There's a Welcome good sign. Welcome
0: to your new home. There's a good sign. Um, apparently, this is Jolene. Uh, I think we can, can we bring the segment back from Mandalorian? Every time we hear you're a fucking cocksucker, and is that Jolene's music? I think we can do it. Well done. I like it. <laughs> She's then walked into the sleeping corners and, Qu- quarters and boy it's tough Spencer I mean this is a large auditorium room full of beds that are jam-packed together um and Beth is right next to the bathroom uh this is just not I mean I, I I don't think that the I mean it's not like the orphanage is in disrepair or anything but like having them all sleep in this big auditorium jammed up next to each other that's that's a that's a tough one for me what it, what was your thoughts when you saw that
1: this is a really interesting institution, just in terms of how it balances out between. Oh, I'm kind of surprised it's that nice, and oh dear God, is it really like that? Yes. It's a fun. It's a fun mix. Like, like you said, this auditorium with the little cardboard box under her bed is all of her worldly possessions. Um, is a rough cell next to the bathroom. Everything else. This is cl- with a one of the next scenes too, when she's holding that one like um. It's like an embro- It's like an embroidered dress, I guess, that she was wearing at the, the instant with her name on it, mm-hmm. and the uh, headmistress or whatever her official title is, just very, almost callously says, oh, well, we'll burn that, and just takes it out of her arms. It's a rough introduction to a place. At the same time, though, over the course of this episode, it's still a pretty well-run institution, even if it is clearly struggling a bit with resources. It's not run down. It's pretty well maintained. Everybody's, you know, polite, if nothing else. She is getting a pretty, what appears to be a quality education of sorts, to the degree that she's paying attention. Now... Balancing that out, she does the entire thing on what appear to be horse tranquilizers. So, we're cutting both ways as we go. Uh,
0: well, we'll get, to the, we'll get to the pills in a minute. I'm not sure they're horse tranquilizers, but we'll, we'll get to those. Um, the head of this orphanage sits on her bed and tries to give her a pep talk, chock full of a lot of God talk. Uh, that comes into play later. Uh, this is clearly a Catholic orphanage. Yes, uh, and then we right. see Beth getting a haircut. What struck out to me in that scene with the haircut is how good of a score... There is. To, I mean, it, it, I believe this is an original score. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they really they do oscillate between the, the major minor chord concertos and, um, you know, really, really pushing the emotion of individual scenes. We get a lot of minor concertos when Beth is like in tough situations.
1: And this is one of the reasons I wanted us to include a bit of a, a best scene for the for, at least this, this episode. We'll see how it continues onward. Is there's a lot of scenes in this where there's no dialogue. It's just building emotion, building emotion, building a feel, mm-hmm. a show not tell kind of philosophy. And for scenes like this, it really does work really well.
0: Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, I think think that's a large part of what this episode is supposed to do. It's supposed to give you a sense of how Beth feels, uh, how she felt in her childhood, because so much of those emotions um, drive her and uh, are a catalyst for what happens later in her life. Um, Spoiler alert.
1: And a question on this, given that you've seen uh, some more episodes from here. During a lot of these scenes, she comes across as being very emotionally removed. Very emotionally distant, in some ways, almost like a difficulty interacting with others. Is that a result in, of trauma, or is this just a result of her inherent, you know, personality? Cause it, it's not entirely clear at this point where that's coming from.
0: A um, little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, I'd have to say.
1: Okay, fair enough. Uh,
0: but I, I do think that there was some nature there. Uh, it's not all nurture. But but what you're describing is is how the character to a T. I mean, she does have trouble. Uh, connecting and, um, you know, focalizing her emotions. We didn't, then see Beth get taken to the med counter at the line for meds. Uh, Beth formally meets Jolene, who gives her the rundown on the pills, uh, claims they are vitamins, which she says with a giggle. Apparently there are blue ones and there are green ones, Spencer, and Jolie suggests that she only take the green ones at bedtime. Uh, now, I did a little research on the pills.
1: Are these a real thing? Yeah, are they they're... Really giving these... To-
0: Yes, they're a real thing. Oh, God. So you got two things going on here. Um, And the first one, the blue pill, um, the author threw in because he himself was given these pills as a young child as a way to stabilize his mood. It's called phenobarbital. Oh. And Walter Tevis was given phenobarbital when he was a young kid and actually blamed that on him developing a drug addiction and later uh, alcoholism so he is writing from a uh, you know a a place of experience with that particular drug I believe the green ones are meant to be benzodiazepines you would know these as things like Valium or Xanax or whatever Um, Valium Xanax Valium in particular was way way over prescribed in the 60s I mean like to a massive degree you could get you could get benzodiazepines by walking in the doctor and saying, you know, I feel a little jittery today, and they would give you a fucking unlimited script of Valium. It was terrible, and they were giving these to kids, which multiple states started to crack down on the late 60s, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, late 50s. So uh, that timeline checks out. So I think blue ones, phenobarbital, green ones, benzodiazepines, and it would make sense if the green ones are benzodiazepines that you would not want to take them in the middle of the day because you're just going to get knocked knocked out.
1: I love the decade based shift on what the preferred drug to give to people was like, you have like, like the thirties and forties, we were giving housewives cocaine so they could do their house, their chores better. And then a couple of days, later they it's like, okay, that was a mistake. Now, calm down. Let's give you some massive downers so that you can rest now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then that went away. Uh, when well, it didn't really go away, but it, it wasn't as popular. Then it like, then we jack up now going into the nineties and the early aughts. Like, Oh, it's wine time let's make all the wine puns in the world and make it like completely okay for housewives to be drinking wine all during the day so yeah it's it's always something right that uh, they're pumping into to women Uh, Jolie asked what um, ask uh, Beth tough question here what is the last thing your parents said to you before they died Uh, we get in a very quick abrupt and very disturbing flashback um Beth's mother crying in the car looking back at her in the rearview mirror saying uh close your eyes.
1: That
0: was So a that was tough. And, and and I think that what we're meant to to infer from that is, you know, Beth's mom did this on purpose. She she committed yeah. suicide by uh by car and she got Beth, she had Beth in the car when she did it, which a lot of things really fucked up about that.
1: And we see a couple of... Uh, I'm spacing right now. We see a couple other scenes about her mom over the course of this episode, don't we?
0: Yeah, we do. Uh, yeah, That's right. We, do.
1: I, I remember we, have some, we have some flashback moments here.
0: Mm-hmm. With a, uh, <laughs> we all, we have, all, have an entire episode of flashbacks. Yeah, it's all flashback. Beth says uh, to, to, to Jolene she what? doesn't remember. Um, and Beth proceeds to knock back both pills uh, against the the advice of Jolene. She does take the green pills.
1: And proceeds to go on a hellbazonking trip as she even tries to walk down a hallway and pretty seriously it seems burns her hand without even being able to feel it.
0: Yeah, when you have an eight-year-old and you just pump them full of volume, I mean, they're not gonna. <laughs> it takes a little while to get your. Takes a little while to get your sea legs, I would imagine. We see Beth. still is optional. See Beth stumbling around the halls, definitely not used to those vitamins. Spoiler alert, Spencer. Spoiler alert. Ear if you don't want to hear it. Beth is a drug addict. And this scene um, is very consistent with the memory of a lot of drug addicts, I believe. Um, you know, this w- th- these flashbacks are Beth's memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel comfortable telling you that. And she very vividly remembers her first high. And that is very consistent with what a lot of drug addicts will will um, will report. And so it's interesting that they threw that in. And they took the space to really show it, right? Because it, you know. Beth, as a drug addict, this is important, uh, important to establish. We got to Beth um, sitting down to dinner. Jolene is laughing and again mentions that Beth shouldn't take the green ones until bedtime. This is a, little bit, of a uh, little bit of a through line in these early episodes. Just fucking listen to Jolene. Just whatever she says, just do it. She knows what she's talking about. Take the green ones at bedtime.
1: How much older um, would you say Jolene is than her? She clearly is, you know, like the veteran girl that's been at the orphanage for years now kind of thing.
0: Two or three years, right? I mean...
1: It, it, it's definitely a jump. She definitely has a bit a bit of well-earned wisdom to bring to bear.
0: Oh, no. She's got to be like five or six years older. Because... Uh, well, we'll get to it. Uh, we'll get to it. Um, but there is there is a scene that actually establish, I think, establishes that she's at least five or six years older than Beth. Um, gotcha. When they sit down to dinner... Um, they have this plate of food that actually didn't look terrible to me. I mean, it looks like there was some mashed potatoes on the plate. There's fish
1: Look, cafeteria worthy. Not
0: fresh. I don't think it was fresh, but there was some fish.
1: <laughs> it was cooked. So, you know, that, that definition of fresh, maybe.
0: <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's the type of fish that you like. Uh, a little inside joke here for the, the listeners. Spencer has said that he doesn't like fresh anything seafood. He wants his tuna old and out of a can. So, Spencer, maybe this is the type of fish that you would have liked.
1: You know, I appreciate the taste of the tin and I think they're getting that. So I think it's good for their development.
0: But the fact that they're you know, Jolene says they eat this every Friday, uh fish again establishing this is a Catholic orphanage. Okay, cool. I forgot about
1: that.
0: Yeah, this and one of the, the um uh one of the girls tells Beth that if she doesn't eat every bite, the headmaster will see and Beth won't get adopted. Um here's my notes from that line. Uh sheesh. <laughs> that's all I got there Spencer woo that's a doozy it's a doozy because it's a it's a crazy thing to be telling Beth but also like what is being indoctrinated in these kids that they're just walking around thinking that
1: yeah that's a heavy amount of you know catholic guilt and terror that's motivating these children in a way they really probably don't need given the you know like foundational question that Jolene asked her is what's the last thing your parents told you before you died before they died
0: woo yeah
1: these kids are already coming with a lot of trauma they need a bit of a soft hand rather than that shit thrown at them
0: completely agree cut to the night and beth is laying in bed jolene was right she should have saved the green ones because she can't sleep beth is having a flashback and hits her dad trying to get into it this is a this i think the scene you're talking about where we get more from other so this is a flashback within a flashback yeah um And it's her dad trying to get into a building her mom is in. And in the flashback, we see her mom is taking pills, which looks like the same green and white ones that Beth is currently taking. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't be surprised if they are. Again, these are benzodiazepines. They're overprescribed in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. In the argument, we hear that Alice, which is Beth's mother, is living in a trailer away from town. Um, uh, Beth's father is saying something along the lines of, hey, you know, if you don't let me in, if you don't... You, you, don't start, you, don't, you don't let me be a part of Beth's life. I'm, I'm going to leave for good, basically, threatening her. Um, we see that during this whole um, sequence of events that Beth's mother lights a fire outside and she starts burning some things. Beth picks up a book, and from the cover of the book, a very, um, very minor detail that I did not catch upon originally viewing this, we see by the title of the book that Alice Harmon is actually a Ph.D., um, which, so her mother, uh, which is very rare back then,
1: and, and particularly in mathematics too. I think that's what, what her PhD was. Yeah. That like we're like early. I mean, I'm guess I'm trying to guess on data based on how old she is later on, but I'm guessing we're like late 40s, early 50s kind of era right now. Yeah. That, that is decades ahead of her time, kind of thing. So she must have been utterly brilliant in a way that people just couldn't wipe sweep under a rug.
0: But I imagine, you know, you can start to piece, uh, piece things together here. She probably was brilliant, probably had some issues, went to the doctor. The doctor over-prescribed her these benzodiazepines. She got laced out, became a, an addict on those, and then, you know, you just see the spiral. And that's kind of what we see of Alice is just this sort of out-of-control person taking pills and just burning shit and being crazy and then eventually killing herself. And So, and, and t- and tough start to life for Beth.
1: Oh, yeah. And the point to start this scene, too, is that, you know... The orphanage kind of dismissed the dad of or oh, you know, he's just a guy that wandered away from his commitments. While he does drive away at the end of the scene, it's clear that he has been trying to and repeatedly been hunting her down to try to stay with his wife and family. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actively is taking steps to avoid him. Probably is a part of either guilt or paranoia or who knows what else. Or just even me- overall mental, mental decline. It's not clear what her mom's going through here. Other than it is a, there are clean, clear signs of a spiral that is happening in her. In a way that she actively needs help and support, but is not getting it and is actively running away from it.
0: Yeah, I am not sure that that explanation of, you know, a victim of a carefree lifestyle actually is fair for her father after this scene. Um, mm-hmm. But we'll see.
1: It's still a painful scene of when he looks into his daughter's eyes through the window, sighs, and still drives away. That's, yep. still, a, that's still a painful scene to watch.
0: Yep uh cut to just the original flashback out of the flashback within a flashback and we see Inception. Beth. we see beth in class the teacher is asking if she's done with an assignment when the teacher sees it she makes a startled faith face and suggests to beth that she go clean the erasers down in the basement spencer what did you take away from this because um i took that to mean that beth just had a she just nailed it everything was right
1: I interpret that as evidence that, you know, we see Beth in the course of this episode is really goddamn good at chess. I took this as an example that she's not just like an idiot savant. No, she's just really, really bright, period.
0: Yeah, I think that she just answered. It looked like math problems. It looked like she answered every one like right away, which would make sense. Her mom was a heady person, intelligent person, Um, Mm -hmm. math. And then, of course, to your point, you know, she's also got the mind for chess. So she probably is pretty good at, at math.
1: And there's some crossover between, you know, being very good at mathematics and being very good at chess, it's effectively solving, solving yeah. equations and, and, find, and, and answering problems and proofs as you play. Um, but it, it was funny for the scene for me where I had teachers like this that I, they did not know how to handle the kids that were really, really bright and in some ways mm-hmm. were caught off guard by them and they may be even a little bit uncomfortable with them. This is not a teacher like the you know that congratulates her or finds additional work for her to do. She just kinda like nope. shuffles her off as like, Okay, how about how about you leave now so I can deal with all the normal kids?
0: Mm-hmm. on the way down to the basement we hear someone else called a cocksucker is that jolene's music i love jolene spencer this is <laughs> going to be another uh recurring thing on this podcast jolene probably my favorite character of the show she's hilarious and i love that like we just get from Beth's perspective just like jolene coming in and out of the screen just like giving people shit like it's just yeah. i love the character uh um, beth gets down people- go ahead
1: I love how beaten down the, uh, the the faculty of this of this institution are with respect to her. Where they're clearly she's clearly just been this way forever, and they're just so tired and done of it now. It's like the guy's holding her up in the arm is just like. Do you just love the taste of soap? What do you want me to do? You know what happens when you do this.
0: She doesn't even break. She's, yeah, you're a cocksucker. Shut up. You know, she's just giving him a business. <laughs> uh, shout out, Jolene. Great character. Beth gets down to the basement, starts to clean the erasers. She sees an older man playing chess, seemingly with himself. This character is Mr. Scheibel, played by Bill Camp. Uh, Bill Camp uh, was also in 12 years a slave joker and birdman just in case the character or the actor seem familiar to you i gotta say spencer queen's gambit 12 years a slave joker birdman this actor has been on a hell of a run lately my god
1: he is a he's been he's had a great run he's a quality actor and i love the quiet taciturn warmth that he brings into this character where this guy is crotchety he's a little bit difficult to deal with himself but there is an inherent warmth and understanding about him that he brings to this role that is really well done.
0: Completely agree. This is the first time that Beth ever sees Mr. Scheibel, and she does not talk to him. She just simply looks at him, and that's the end of the scene. Cut back to the Medline, and Beth sees Jolie, uh, Jolene, leaving the Medline, and she sticks her tongue out, showing Beth that she has, in fact, not swallowed the green pill. Beth takes her Here's advice. How you hide it. Yep, Beth takes her advice this time, keeps the green pill for the evening. And after taking it, very important scene here, she starts to see a chessboard start to materialize on the ceiling of the orphanage. Which,
1: which is which is really interesting, because like you noted, she didn't interact with Mr. Scheibel. She just kind of stared at what he was doing as he was playing chess by himself. And already she has an instinctive draw to the game. Yep. So much so that she can replicate it, not understanding it, but just even replicate what the pieces look like on the board from one brief glance
0: yeah and it's that's that's important though that beth is seeing this on the the ceiling of this this chessboard and and you know that the chessboard that she's seen in this first scene is a little cloudy right it's not not completely fleshed out but it's just kind of what she was able to pick up from that first uh time seeing mr scheibel play Mm -hmm. cut to the next morning miss deardolph comes in and says that a girl named mary sue is being adopted Jolene is talking to Beth and says, Great quote here, potential line of the episode from Jolene. That's not fair. She came in after you. Most of us are lifers. Nobody's going to come for us now. We're too old or too black. Great line from yeah. Jolene. Jolene, man, bright girl. I uh, cut to music class and, or actually, I, I wrote this down as music class, but I think we figure out later it's chapel. So they're just, they're not really learning music, they're just singing hymns. Um, and hilarious sequence anytime we see Beth in chapel not interested like takes the book of hymns and just chucks it as she walks out um, yeah. this time she gets an excuse and uh, to leave and she goes down to Mr. Shiable. Beth asks him what he's playing it's the first time they ever actually have a conversation he's reluctant at first but eventually says this is Jess she has to learn to play and he says he doesn't play strangers and she leaves so there's this little like sort of Beth is playing this cat and mouse game with Scheibel where she, like very interested in what he's doing, not interested at all in singing hymns up in chapel, and she's just trying to get into his like inner circle enough to learn what he's playing and have a conversation with him, right? And,
1: and as, we, as we learn later, part of Mr. Scheibel's reticence, uh, part of Mr. Scheibel's reticence is here is professional, is that it seems like there's standing rules at this institution that he's not supposed to interact with the girls, that, he, that they're not supposed to come down to the, to, to the basement to hang out with him, he's not supposed to interact with them, probably not alone. So... That may explain a little bit of his reticence as well. as just his kind of natural, grumpy nature anyway.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That night, Beth again sees the chessboard on the ceiling. Spencer, question for you. Uh, we now seen this sequence twice of Beth at night, looking up in the ceiling, seeing the chessboard, seeing the pieces move around. Do you think this is a straight-up hallucination? Do you think it's a dream, or do you think it's just her imagination?
1: I think it's, as you answered earlier, Why not? why not a few of them? Uh, I think that, I think it is her imagination, but I think the pills help her conceptualize it better. I think she uses them as a means of better being able to see it, uh, see, see her imagination play out. I don't think she's, I don't think she's literally hallucinating, but that's just my read on it.
0: Could be. Next morning, Beth is outside with Jolene. Beth says Jolene was right to tell her to keep the green ones until night. Jolene, how many did you take? Beth, I don't know. Sometimes I skip a day or a bunch of days, and then I take two or three. I like the way it feels. Jolene, I bet you do. You just be careful. You don't get too used to that feeling. So great interaction there. Again, you know, I don't think I'm hurting anything by giving you the spoiler that Beth is a drug addict. It's pretty clear early on. She has a vivid memory the first time she takes the green pill. Um, then she even makes a point of telling Jolie and that childlike honesty, right? Where she doesn't even know this is something she's not supposed to say out loud. She's just saying it. She's saying, yeah, I just like the way it feels. So I just take two or three at a time. And Jolene, a little bit older, a little bit more, um, knowledgeable of the world, cautions her and says, you just need to be careful with that.
1: Yeah. This is a disturbing kind of world wise that. She's had enough years at this place and seen enough girls go through this that she already can just recognize or be worried about the telltale signs of addiction, which yep. strongly suggests she's seen a lot of other girls go through this. Yeah. And that's just concerning.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, you know, if you, you look at like addiction research, like, you know, basically what we have is, is, uh, research that suggests that about 10% of people are susceptible to addiction. of people out there. It's pretty much the same across cultures, across nations. So if you take that 10% rule and you apply it to what's going on in this orphanage and they're just pumping these kids with phenobarbital and and benzodiazepines, you're going to get an awful lot of kids that come through there that have crazy, what would seem like crazy reactions to this stuff, right? Hoarding pills, asking for pills when it's not their turn, or when they have the pills, having reactions that seem... Uh, out of the norm so jolene i bet to your point i bet she's seen it kind of come and go
1: yeah and i mean if you've already told me that this is going to be a long-term addiction for her, and i'm not surprised because for a lot of people what addictions they have or suffer from began before the age of 18 you know, like i've read a story before about smoking is that your odds of you know being a regular smoking addict are directly dependent on when you started smoking if yep. you started smoking after the age of 18 probably not gonna have a problem with the long term you started smoking before very strong odds that it's going to be a long-term addiction
0: yeah, cut to Beth cleaning the erasers again, and Mr. Scheibel is still playing chess. But question for you, Spencer. When the hell does Mr. Scheibel work?
1: <laughs> it is, I don't know if she's like, perp. it's perfectly possible she's purposely timing this to be down there when she knows that he's like on his break, but it's true. We don't really see him sweeping the floors much or anything. He, no. She only ever seems to find him <laughs> down here.
0: He's just downstairs playing chess all the time. <clears throat> Beth tells him she's not a stranger. She lives here. Beth tells him, quote, I already know some of it from watching. There you go. Very first sign here that Beth might be different, right? I mean, a- right. apart from what we know of her, like, you know, from the first person, like her seeing the chessboard on the ceiling. This is the first, like, I think, external validation of that where this girl is very different. Like if she's she's been down there, what we have seen twice. And she's already picking up how the, the pieces move at eight, nine years old. That is pretty impressive.
1: And she's only seen him move like, you know, what, 10 pieces or whatever else? Yeah. And yet she's already got a grasp on this. And he fights her a little bit at first. He rather dismissively, not impolite, but dismissively just says, girls do not play chess. Mm-hmm. And then she goes point by point about how each piece moves, and even he can't deny it anymore.
0: Yeah. And, and when she does that, when she's explaining to him, you know, like, hey, look. These are how the the different pieces move. I told you. I know some of it already. He takes note and then starts to quiz her, and she answers the questions mostly right. Um, the knight, she, know the she names gets or anything, she, but she gets the answer to the knight wrong. She says, I think she says something like it can go diagonal and one space up. Um, mm-hmm. When a knight obviously can go one space up, two spaces crossed as well. I think that's a good that's a good detail though because it shows. She's paying attention, but she's only ever seen him move the knight one way when the knight can move multiple ways, right? Um, So good detail
1: there. And it's really a credit to his character that he immediately recognizes this. He immediately sees that this is a unique person and decides to greet her on her own terms. It's like, okay, not supposed to do this, but I'm so thoroughly impressed. Let's play a game and see how it goes.
0: Yep. He says, let's play a game. I play white now, now or never. So, from jump, Beth seems to be pretty good because she's playing the game and she's not, she doesn't die right away. I mean, he, you know, he, he has to play her a little bit. And then we get a montage of Beth taking pills at night and Mr. Scheibel t- teaching her some moves. So, this is the first like Beth playing chess montage we get. Spoiler alert, we get a lot of those. Um, the first, um, uh, I guess, move that he teaches her is something called Scholar's Mate. Uh, I don't know what that is I I looked up a couple of them I didn't look up that one Uh, We see Beth staring at the ceiling Going back over her moves Again and again Sidebar Just from a production standpoint Love the animation Of the board on the ceiling Um, Man is that They You know I don't think they spent a ton of money Making this show Because the sets are You know There's only like three or four sets In this entire episode But they spent a lot of money On the CGI Of the chessboard on the ceiling
1: Oh, yeah, no question at all. It's one of the more stark and interesting visuals they do in this, in, in this entire episode. It cool. is It is a very interestingly and well-done uh, way of expressing her imagination and her exploration of the game by herself.
0: Yeah, 100%. Cut to the next day, and Beth again begs off chapel. Beth, not a big chapel person. Not digging the chapel, Spencer. Uh, again slams down the book of hymns and goes down to play chess. Mr. Scheibel clearly could have gotten in trouble for this, though. I just want to point that out. Um, I don't think he's supposed to be... Because what we know of this orphanage, you know, through later details, is that they're very funny about, like, girls being in close proximity with men. Um, Which is
1: probably a good call
0: to a certain degree. uh, Well, it is and it isn't, right? Like, I mean, I think that, like, you probably shouldn't hire somebody to work there if you don't feel... In a girl's orphanage. If you don't feel comfortable with them being around girls. Um, but yeah, it's a, yeah, they are being some you know protecting uh, of the girls in a way that's not. Um, it probably comes from a good place.
1: It, 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 like you said, there's a certain element of over but it's an understandable enough to, to concern to at least be aware of where the girls are at all times and keep them in class. Um, so he's a bit of a, having her down there just hanging out with them is a bit of an uncontrolled factor that they're not comfortable with, and we see that later when yeah. Uh, Beth kind of gets cold to the carpet of like you've been doing you've been playing chess with Mr. Shival throughout most of the day. You can't do that. Yeah, we'll that's, we'll yeah. make this more official now. But yeah, this needs to be something we have oversight over.
0: Yep. <clears throat> but they start playing again, and it looks like Beth is getting pretty good. But hard break she loses her queen and looks like in what looks like a dumb move sidebar here Spencer whenever I play chess I told you before it's mentally taxing for me because I have to go through like every single move that the person could play in their head or at least all the ones that I can figure out Mm -hmm. so here's how I play I attack early and often with my queen I get the queen out I get her going and I go attack and one of two things happens I either beat you pretty fast Or I lose pretty quickly. And (laughs) what happens to Beth here happens to me all the time. She lost her queen early and probably a dumb move. And when that happens, Mr. Scheibel tells her to resign. Which I maintain is what you're supposed to do. Now, I have played people who when I got super aggressive with my queen and lost my queen, I tried to resign and they said, no, you're supposed to play it out. Why are you quitting? Everyone listening here. PSA from the Mangum Talks uh, TV uh, podcast. From the Mango Talks podcast channel, nay, let me let me elevate it. From everybody you hear on this, I'm going to go ahead and put words in their mouth. If you lose your queen early to something stupid, you need to resign. That is my position.
1: In the words of Mr. Scheibel, it's not a rule, it's sportsmanship.
0: Yes, you need to do that. And if somebody tries to do the right thing when you're playing them, let them quit. All right, back to now, the recap.
1: <laughs> did they Now, on the other hand... Uh, did at any point in those experiences one of you ever refer to the other as a cocksucker when this moment happened?
0: I think people have called me that many times playing chess. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, um, okay. So they're drawing from Beth Harmon's book. Understood.
0: Yeah, because um, yeah, to Spencer's point, when uh, he says you need to you need to resign, she says she doesn't want to. She wants to keep playing. He tells her no, they can't keep playing, and she calls him a cocksucker.
1: Uh, Which. But two seats from now proves absolutely hilarious in the sense that she has no idea what that word means. She just <coughs> knows it from Jolene.
0: Yep. Again, we get another montage of Beth thinking of the moves on the ceiling. She tries visiting Mr. Scheibel again after her outburst, but the door is locked. <clears throat> um. When I f- Spencer, when you first watched this, did, did you think she might have been just done playing chess with Mr. Scheibel? Because I did.
1: You know... I, I was kind of like, no, you just burned that bridge. That was a really rude thing to say to a guy that was kind of doing you a favor and letting you hang out. You're Yeah, he has all right to lock that door now.
0: Yeah, so she now has to clean the erasers outside. And when outside, she notices a boy. Mm. Cut, cut back to Beth and Jolene in the bathroom. Beth asks Jolene what a cocksucker is. And Jolene gives her darndest... Uh, uh gives her darndest best um, i don't know that's an awkward way to say that uh, she does her very best <laughs> to explain what a cocksucker is
1: this is the kind of lesson of where there's a certain foundational series of steps that they kind of have to understand before you can ever get to what this actually is about and given that she has no frame of reference of what either a cock or a penis is it's a rough starting point to learn more from
0: yeah, my favorite part of the scene though is a that Jolene is not one hundred percent sure. I mean, she she yeah. has she has a ninety percent I would say ninety percent understanding of what a cocksucker really is. She has
1: an acad- she has an academic understanding of the su- of the subject.
0: Right, but the way she throws it around, you would think she's like been on a navy ship. I mean, my God, she <laughs> is. A, she throws that word around like it's like it's second nature to her. And then I love that Beth. Having been the good studious girl that she is, paying attention in sex ed class, goes isn't that where the pee comes out of? And then Jolene has to explain. Well, I'm pretty sure they clean it. <laughs> so now they're just speculating <laughs> on male hygiene habits, which I find very funny. Um, I, I, go I, ahead. I love
1: Jolene's thought process. Terrible. She has she has a health book understanding of a penis. She probably has maybe a couple times heard the word cocksucker just thrown out. And it's determined it is a guaranteed phrase to piss people off. And so it's just become her go-to word, go-to-go-to go-to word to use.
0: Yeah, and Beth, Beth unknowingly is calling a little bit of bullshit on that, right? By asking the question, because Jolene can't she gives a little bit of an answer. But again, about 90% of the way there, Jolene's understanding. Yeah. Um, but it is I found the, the scene charming in the sense that, yeah, she called Mr. Scheibel that. She didn't know what it meant. And you will, you will, you will note, once she found out what it meant never called him that again
1: no it's a good point Uh, you know it's such a I I also found this scene very charming because it's so true to life where I remember moments like that when I was like in that nine to like early teens age of when somebody learns a word for the first time and they tell all their friends it we all don't really understand it other than it's a bad word this is a very true to life kind of experience that I remember well
0: Oh, I mean, you know, sorry for going blue here, folks. So, um, any kids listening, uh, let's let's drop the volume down for forty five seconds and come back to the pod. Uh, okay, they've done it, uh, Spencer. Uh, for like two years in elementary school, I pretended to know what a blowjob was. I heard that, f- <laughs> I heard, oh, yeah. I heard oh, that yeah. term in like first grade, and I don't think I knew what it was until like third or fourth grade. I just walked around and be like, yeah, yeah, blowjob. I like, I just pretended to know exactly what it was. I had no fucking idea what that word meant.
1: There were so many moments like that of when, like, just feeling like you knew what it was or knew the word just made you feel like you were more of an adult. And so even though you had the vaguest facade understanding of what what this was, the fact that you knew the word felt powerful.
0: (laughs) He's so funny. Um, Beth again tries to visit Mr. Scheibel, but this time, whoop, the door's open. She goes down and she sees Mr. Scheibel. He's got the board set and he motions for her to sit down and play. Mr. Scheibel! Spencer, yeah. the real MVP of the show. Just want to point him out. Good dude. I mean, this little girl. He's first off, he's putting himself, his job, probably in jeopardy by even having these interactions. He's having to teach her how to play chess, which is probably a little bit of pain of pain in the ass, especially early on. And then to boot, when he tries to teach her a lesson in sportsmanship, she calls him a cocksucker. And not only does he forgive her, he sets the board and he preps it to play her again. The real MVP, Mr. Scheibel
1: i i imagine we're going to leave her childhood behind in an episode or two and from what you've described she's going to go on to be you know a a major international chess player i hope we see more of mr scheibel going forward because man this guy is important to where she's going in her life i mean if she had not found a mr scheibel nothing afterwards probably would have happened
0: yeah because at this point in best life two friends jolene mr scheibel that's it this nine-year-old girl has two friends in her life so this guy has a very important place in Beth Harmon's life. I just, uh, I, I don't think I'm, I'm breaking any ground by saying that.
1: And, and, and as you noted, uh, the patience of this man to go through what he's doing with her. She's, I mean, it's already enough. To, it's already hard enough in terms of interacting with a nine year old, mature as she is knowledgeable as she is. And also Beth is a bit of a, just a pill herself. anyway, yes. from What we've seen of her Ooh, pill. But, <laughs> yeah. Po- sorry. Pointed pun there. Um, But he has the patience, and he has, more than anything, he sees the value in her. He sees the potential in her, and he wants to support it.
0: Yeah. I I love this dude. Um. Yeah. Yeah, this time, uh, so he tells her to sit down and play, and she does. This time, Beth is doing much better. She doesn't lose her queen right away. Great, thoughtful concerto playing here. Some minor chords. I think this is meant to give you the impression that when playing chess, despite all the bad shit that has happened in Beth's life and continues to happen, when she is playing chess, she's in her element, and she's happy, so we get those major chords. Beth still seems to be pushing him, though, um, when she's playing. Uh, And what I mean by that is... She's making very quick moves. She's making the types of moves that I do not make (laughs) when I'm playing chess. (laughs) She seems to know, okay, he moved knight, you know, to queen four. Uh, I'm going to move pawn to, you know, king six or whatever. Like he, she knows exactly where to go. His moves, however, are not sure. Um, Eventually he resigns. Um, Beth. Uh, does seem to be pleased by this. Um, <laughs> he says gloating. she's gloating. Um, uh, my man, Mr. Scheibel, I just went on the diatribe bodies he's the real MVP, still the real MVP in my heart and mind, uh, however, does not like to lose. Now, I wouldn't say he's a sore loser, but does not like to lose.
1: Yeah, it, it's an even mix. He's taking this the way a teacher should when the student first beats them, and it, it's... I think it implies from the later scenes that this, it's not, this is not like the moment of where she beats him every game going forward, but this is the first moment that she has beat him. Uh, and like you said, she, he, he clearly is annoyed. He tries to get her off bloating, but there's still an element of respect that goes into it too, of when he says, you know, you're gloating, um, and she's like almost bragging a little bit, I still beat you. He, he still adds a teaching element to it of, you could have beat me sooner and let's teach you about openings and he yep. starts going into continuing the education of the game while of course setting the board for a second round because like hell is he going to let her uh, walk away on that whim
0: yeah so when he they put the board together he says i need to teach you a move i need to teach you the sicilian defense okay Woo! full stop in the podcast i'm going to try to explain what the sicilian defense is you ready for this spencer
1: Uh, It it is one of the single most important openings in chess. I am delighted to hear you describe it.
0: Okay. All right. Here we go. So chessboard. If you are, here's how, so when you're talking about chess space names, which this comes up later in the episode, here's how you do it. Right. All right. So you're on white. Let's say you're playing the perspective of white. Um, From left to right, you've got your castle all the way to your castle and your king is left of your queen
1: i would recommend our listeners say either to pull up a picture of a chessboard with the pieces on there that will help with understanding this
0: yeah absolutely um but anyway but but, but yeah i think i could uh, give a brief explanation yeah, um, yeah, yeah. your your king is left of your queen and basically where uh your king is is column d where your queen is e right left to right d e um and up from your rows is one two three four so Um, Let's say the pawn directly in front of the queen, column E, it would go to space two to four. So E two to four. Boom. There it is. That's how you explain it. The Sicilian opening is where you move your pawn that is directly in front of your king two spaces up. Then you move your knight uh, that is to your right. You move that up. Then you move your next pawn. So it's the the three moves are pawn, knight, pawn, and then eventually knight again, the knight that's on your left side. That's basically the Sicilian opening. Now, I don't know anybody who's halfway good at chess. I've seen move the king, move the the pawn in front of their king first to free up their queen, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I've seen that so many times. Um, so that's kind of that's that's. Go ahead.
1: And, and, and just to expand on it, what you described was the Sicilian opening that white does. And like you said, that very much opens up your queen. That is the first move I ever learned how to do, just because I was like, hey, if my queen gets out, I get to murder things now. Yep. That just seems like what you do. What is literally the Sicilian defense, though, is a response to that. Yeah,
0: it's what what black does, which is, um, which I could, you want to talk about it?
1: I'm, I'm happy to take it. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, since, yeah. Since that is uh, viewed as like one of the most common openings, um, by white because it opens it, it opens up it opens up your next attack uh black's response at least an aggressive way for black to respond is to take the pawn that is in front of the uh, take the pawn that is in front of the queen's bishop yep. and move it to two spaces forward because that opens up their queen for an aggressive kind of response And essentially just makes it if you're going to make continue to make aggressive moves i can respond and we can start killing pieces now it's a pointed way of saying, I'm not surrendering the initiative in this game. I'm going to fight you for it, even though you're white and you have the advantage.
0: But if you play the Sicilian defense out, three three moves in, <clears throat> what you will end up with is a freed up bishop, your queen's bishop, and a freed up queen. To go basically in diagonal moves left and right across the board as you're looking at it. So if you play the Sicilian Defense well, <clears throat> you'll do a pawn sacrifice, but you as Black will have your bishop and your queen freed up to to start making moves across the board. And then if you're I think your fourth or fifth move in, you also move your your knight. So you actually have like a bunch of different things going um, if somebody does the Sicilian opening.
1: It keeps your keeps your combat options open, so that you can keep your opponent your opponent off balance. But I would say it is probably the most common today opening by Black in response to White in terms of giving them the best some of the best odds of victory.
0: Yeah, so I looked at a um, I looked at some data on um, world champion chess matches. Um, I think since it was like since 1965 they've been keeping the data, and something like 38 39 percent of all openings. Um, In the world championships from all of that time, all those data points, was the Sicilian opening.
1: Right. And a key part of that, and I'll go into that in my little spiel, is that the Russians lived and died by it. It was the basis of the Russian chess school for a long period of time.
0: Yeah, And that's why um, when you start looking at, when you do some research into the Sicilian defense, you'll see a bunch of, quote, variations, or a Sicilian opening, I should say, on the Sicilian opening or the Sicilian defense, really. You'll see variations on those. Because kind of the way it works is like in chess you'll say, okay, here's the move you learn, and then boom, there's this branch or this big tree of, quote, variations on that move you can do. A lot of the variations off the Sicilian are Russian words. (laughs) You just noticed that. Uh, So that's a good way to tell. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, Uh, so she needs to learn the, the Sicilian defense. Then we get another montage of Beth learning from Mr. Scheibel. And her getting her medication and looking at the ceiling and looking at the chess pieces move. He references the Levenfish variation and the Nidorf variation. Um, and did you, uh, I didn't really look into either one of these. Do you want to talk about either one of those? I feel like we explained the Sicilian. I mean, I, I don't know if we want to talk about those variations. I-
1: yeah, I, fig- I figured I could save it for a later segment of where I would just compile. I'm writing them down. And I'll compile them and look them up, and I can describe kind of what they are once she... Um, I'm presuming she's going to learn more as time goes on, so I can discuss a few of the key ones, and maybe where they came about from. So it, he, he definitely is teaching her a lot of different responses about how to other players' moves, which is a key part of chess, is that it's very much if this, then this. If this, then this kind of response to what everybody else does. You're not just operating in a vacuum. You're working off what your opponent does. And a lot of the moves are named uh, and working accordingly.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Levenfish fish uh, variation, it really is just a, an additional move by white when you're doing the Sicilian opening, which is to move your pawn up, uh, your 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 king's pawn up two spaces, uh, freeing up even more space. But anyway. Another,
1: that, another attack.
0: Exactly. It just, it, I guess when you're, the reason I wanted to mention that is The Levin Fish is yet another very aggressive move. And so what we're seeing here, if you you do a little bit of research into it, is that Mr. Scheibel is not just teaching her openings and variations on those openings. He's teaching her very aggressive attacks. And that actually comes up later in later episodes, because that's how Beth learns to play chess, is to kick your shit in early and often. That's the Beth Harmon that we know and love.
1: I, and I'm curious about that. I'd I almost want to believe that he was in re- he was recognizing what her natural skills was because you noted from the very first moment she started playing, she had a very aggressive play style. Mm-hmm. She was sta- she liked to stare. Pe- she she was stare- She was she was continually mad mugging her eyeball on Mister Scheibel while he was playing. It was pretty aggressive for a nine year old anyway. Yep. And then in her style of dealing with him, it was this kind of relentless attack that she just kept doing. Um, so I think I agree that he's kind of working off that and respecting that and trying to nourish that style of play is working to her her natural skills yep
0: in that montage we see a teacher she's writing multiplication tables and she looks for her um eraser which she doesn't have why because beth has already taken the erasers down to go (laughs) clean them so she can play more chess did you see on the screen in that uh in that part of the montage the teacher actually wrote on the board five times three equals eighteen
1: no, I didn't know So that's
0: that. that's why she's looking for her eraser is because she wrote, she messed up. She wrote five times three equals 18. Small point. I understand they just needed to create a scene where the teacher needed an eraser. I get the storytelling. I'm just saying
1: Dear that God. if
0: you're a math teacher and you wrote five times three equals 18, even as a mistake, if you ever wrote that five times three equals 18 on the board, resign right now. That's That's my advice to you. <laughs>
1: No wonder Beth is kicking kicking ass at these tests that's the level of schooling she's getting in math
0: (laughs) My god 5 times 3 equals 18 You should be embarrassed, madame Uh, We see Beth outside watching the boys again Um, Then we see a girl in sex ed class Beth again looks at the boys outside This time one of them is making out And getting handsy with a girl So we're seeing probably uh, Three very important things In Beth's life taking form here Chess, mm-hmm. boys, drugs.
1: That this is, is a th- yeah. hell of a combination, wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah, this is the three-headed dragon of Beth Harmon. Um Ooh. Mr. Scheibel then teaches her the Queen's Gambit and tells her they are gonna start rotating white and black. White usually plays first. Uh so rotating makes a lot of sense because it teaches her how to play as the person who plays first. I, t- I assume that he wanted to play white every time just because he enjoys it. Uh, but now he realizes that his enjoyment is not the only reason they're now playing chess. He is, has a responsibility to teach her. Let's talk about the Queen's Gambit. The whole damn show is named the Queen's Gambit. Uh, uh-huh. So, let's <clears throat> uh, start the Queen's Gambit. White moves um, the pawn that is uh, over the Queen forward.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Queen's Gambit, right? The pawn's Queen That's moves good. forward.
1: And notably, for all of these, at least under modern rules, you're typically moving the pawn forward
0: two. Yeah, you use your extra space. Yeah, you move you move up two. Then, as a response, Black will move the pawn in front of their queen up two. Now you have two pawns that are right in front of each other. White then moves queen's bishop up two. Uh, then that will prompt Black um, to to take to take um, the uh, the pawn. And uh, if that happens, uh, there you go. You've got the Queen's Gambit. Um, yeah, it, uh, Spencer, it, anything it, else you want to add to that? Go ahead.
1: Yeah, and it's referred to as a gambit because it is, it is a sacrifice to open up options where you are losing a piece early in the game in a way that you know, a lot of early players might view as a problem. You shouldn't lose pieces. It's hurting yourself. But statistically, if Black takes that piece, you have massively improved your odds in the game. That is just kind of how chess works. That's the numbers that are attached to it. So it is a gambit, it is a sacrifice, but you're opening up long-term options that improve your chances of winning.
0: Well, it was a re- go ahead,
1: and it's one of the oldest openings. We're talking like this is an opening that was written in like the, some of the very first printed books were discussing this opening.
0: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> yes. So the Spencer's right. Queen's Gambit, very old uh, opening, very old. Um, Strategy in chess. It was named the Queen's Gambit because on the surface it does look like a gambit. You are sacrificing something. But uh, chess experts in later years, so like chess experts now, would, would tell you that it's not a true gambit because it's not a real sacrifice because it actually puts you, as Spencer mentioned, in a position, um, in an advantageous position if it, if it happens. So <clears throat> Queen's Gambit, it's kind of funny because it's a little bit of a misnomer. It's not really a gambit um all right uh where are we at now i think we are at um he tells her that she needs to yeah so he mr scheibel taught her the queen's gambit beth notices mr scheibel drinking uh interesting interesting tidbit there for beth because she is noticing the drinking uh ask if that's whiskey he says yes and tells her uh not to tell anybody And he gives her a book on chess openings, but he tells her she needs to learn the names of the squares to read it. Beth is starting to piece together that this is a little bit weird, right? This is not just him playing chess with her on his off hours. Instead, now it looks like he's actually teaching her, and that prompts a very astute question from her. She says, am I good? Am I any good? Potential line of the episode here, Spencer, from Mr. Scheibel. To tell you the truth, child, you are astounding.
1: I love that line. I love the intonation that he puts into it, because it just reflects that he is truly astounded by her. He's mesmerized by her and her ability. And it's just something that cannot be denied, and it can't be allowed to fade. And so he's really adopting a role of a mentor to try to nourish this natural talent in her and see where it goes. Um, And this book that he gives her is, um, he gives her modern chess openings, which I've looked it up is like the preeminent guide from the 20th century of chess openings. Like they've been publishing this thing since 1911 kind of thing. So if you're going to learn chess, this is a fundamental book you'll read early.
0: What a great, what a great detail. Uh, Glad you pointed that out. That's a great detail the show had to actually have like a, a book that people would be giving a potential chess prodigy at that time. Great detail. Let me see Beth go downstairs. Mr. Scheibel has a guy from the chess club there, Mr. Gans. Clearly, Mr. Schreiber is getting someone else's opinion on if she's good or not. This seems like a little bit of a um, show pony, you know, run around the track type thing, right? Let's let's run her, let's see how she does. Um, and a few moves in, she finishes up the game um, for both of them, which is such a flex here. This is Beth Harmon dunking <laughs> on Mr. Gantz. Not only does she start to play with him and have Mr. He, she she has Mr. Gantz rocked from the first few moves because again Beth is an aggressive player and she's got him screwed all up within a first couple moves and then she gets up back to the board she starts she starts um, running through each individual move and finishes the match for both of them so big time flex from my girl Beth Harmon he asked her if she plays with anyone else You know, not just Mr. Shabble. Very good question. Because if I'm Gantz, I'm thinking, there's no way you got this fucking good playing this one janitor. Like, what is going on here? And she explains, I play in my head on the ceiling. He he has no idea what to do with that, other than to just kind of go, hmm, okay. Um, Then I'm going to do, I'm debuting a new segment, which will be for this episode and this episode only. Cringy moment of the episode. You ready for it? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I know exactly what you're about to talk about.
0: <laughs> Mr. Gans gives her a present. She's excited. I'm excited. We're excited, Spencer. She's getting a chest set, right? She needs a chest set. That's what you so give great. this girl. Wonderful, yes. Chest set, and it's a doll. What? Oh,
1: what? I, and I love that Mr. Scheibel's on the exact same page as she is when she looks at her. Yeah. <laughs> She immediately turns to him and is like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? And he just shrugs and like, yes, sir. Thank you. I know it's not what you wanted, but come on.
0: Yep. He does. <laughs> a little motion for her. Yeah. A little motion for her. She says, thanks. Um, and then Beth, uh, again, let's just see, you know, she went between the legs. Let's see if she could do the windmill dunk. Um, let's make her play against both of these guys at the same time on two different boards, which she does. And she does board. Um,
1: yeah, I, I, lo- yeah. I love the po- the power move that she does of where she's de- clearly defeated Mr. Scheibel. He's just kind of sitting there patiently with his shoulders slumped. She's still playing the local teacher, but like you said, about like four moves before she- she's got him defeated and she knows it's coming, she just walks and strolls away and no longer looks at the board for the rest of the game but still says her moves.
0: With both of them, doing it to both of them. Um, yeah, so I mean, at this point, you know, she... she can still, I think, gain some things by playing Mr. Scheibel, but she's gaining something in the way that, like, to continue the basketball analogy, like a basketball player, you know, is able to, like, run a few sets with a trainer. They're not playing a real game in the sense that the basketball player is not really challenged. Beth is not really challenged when playing him, but she is able to, like, you know, run through some different variations and get some reps in. Um,
1: At at this point... Their value to her is fundamentals and theory rather than actual competitive play.
0: Right. And by the way, Beth, nine years old. Just want to point that out. Nine years old. All of nine. Yeah.
1: And arrogant as shit at nine already.
0: Well, I mean, she's got good reason to be. She's beating the hell out of both of these guys with no, I mean, literally with her back turned to them. Um, We cut to a scene of Beth tossing the doll, which, you know, funny, right? She's tossing the doll because she doesn't want the doll. My wife pointed this out, which I thought was a very astute point. Which was, she also doesn't need to have that doll. Because none of the other girls got the doll. Like, that's just going to create problems for her to have a gift, have a something. Because, you know, she doesn't want the doll. But I guarantee some other girls in that orphanage are going to want that doll. It's not a, good thing for, not a good thing for her to just have in the world. So it's good. It's smart. On, it's funny, but it's smart on her part to dump the doll.
1: Yeah. Like like we noted originally, the entirety of the personal possessions these girls are allowed to have fits in like a five by five box that's underneath their beds. These girls don't have much. And if she had something like that, it would get people talking. It would it would make her stand out. It would ostracize her from her peers in a way that. She already has a difficulty enough associating with others. She does not need that.
0: Yeah, doesn't make any... Yeah, terrible gift all the way around from, from Mr. Gantz.
1: He meant well. He very much meant well. There was not an element of condescension or judgment or anything else he attached to this. He was just fundamentally just demonstrating a lack of a, Well, actually, I'm going to give him a little, even a little bit more credit. He got that gift clearly before he ever met her. This is her first time meeting her. He, Mr. Scheibel said, hey, there's a girl that I play chess with I'd like you to meet her and he processed that and went oh there's a young girl young girls like dolls I'll be a nice guy and bring a gift with me when I meet her that is a really nice gesture that just utterly tanked upon meeting the actual person
0: right and to give him you know to continue this out to give Gantz a little bit more credit than I was giving him he also hadn't seen the orphanage so he maybe didn't know that the girls didn't have in their own toys
1: Right. This, is, this is the well-meaning white liberal kind of thing of handling a problem.
0: Right, but when he, yeah, if he was to look at that place, he would know. These girls don't have their individual toys, so maybe not a good idea to give her one. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, but he, upon seeing her utter brilliance, he proposes something. I think that's the next scene we go to.
0: Yeah, then we see Mr. Deardolph with Beth and Mr. Gantz. Uh, Mr. Gantz wants Beth to go to the high school to play the uh, high school kids on Thursdays she asked beth if um she wants to play at the high school and she does uh miss Steerdorf ask if she's been playing chess with the custodian this is the part that you talked about spencer um and she says she yes she has so that uh, i think that uh mysterious line was what that's highly irregular is that what i heard
1: yes yes
0: yeah um then we cut to the med line and elizabeth is not getting any more green ones
1: I love the oh line the guy uses to describe this, too, where it is just so casually flippant as to how fucked up what they've been doing is. It's just like, he just kind of shrugs and says, eh, new state law, no tranquilizers for kids. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> removed from how massively disturbing what they've been doing to keep these kids controlled has been.
0: Yeah, and you can tell, like, when you tell Beth no more green ones, like, her face gets screwed up. She's like, why? Like, she is pissed. And in bed that night, she takes her last green one. The next day, she's looking into the pharmacy, and she sees that it's padlocked. Remember that detail. Beth asked Jolene if she's still getting, or if she's getting any extras. All right, so here's the scene I was talking about when you talked about the age of these two characters, right? So we ju- you just pointed out that the guy at the med counter, it looks like sort of like the... I don't know, just like the orderly. Maybe you could call yeah, him that.
1: He's an orderly. Yeah. I think that's general um, purpose staff.
0: Yeah. And he's handing these out. He says no more tranquilizers for minors. Well, when, when Beth is talking to Jolene, it's apparent that Jolene is still getting these pills because Beth is asking, are you getting any extra? So Beth, nine years old, Jolene, not a minor. So I think we're, we're thinking maybe a six or seven year difference in the age of these girls. Um, if that if that's any indication quite uh, possible yeah um, well Jolene explains no I'm not getting any extra and Jolene does say look all you girls all these youngsters aren't gonna be getting these green ones anymore and she makes a joke we're gonna have a what did she say um, we're gonna uh, you look around there's gonna be some jumpy orphans the next few days <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, funny yeah. funny line but she she does ask Beth if she's having any withdrawal symptoms Beth doesn't know what that is um, Cut to the next scene. Yes, Beth is having withdrawal symptoms from these benzodiazepines because as she's about to be taken to the high school, she does not look good. She clearly hasn't slept. She does seem a little jumpy. Um, her eyes are kind of sunken in. I think they used to, like makeup for that effect, but like it looks like she hasn't slept in a while. So, yes, I think she's having some, some adverse reactions to not getting those green pills anymore. Really, really bad time for that to happen because now she has to go show what she can do, right? She's going to the high school to play all the high school kids. It's a terrible time for her to be having these withdrawal symptoms. And we already know that part of her uh, um, process in studying chess and thinking about it is when she's kind of high. So not having these pills for a period of time before she's going to high school, really, really bad thing. But is that Jolene's music? Jolene pulls her aside, bang, gives her two of the green ones, and Beth is back in business.
1: It's a shame that this is her means that she's found to be able to, you know, perform with the remarkable ability that she's capable of. But yeah, this where is the only way she learned. Yep. This is this is like. A, did you ever have any like kind of like sport or activity of where you weren't you learned a bad way to do it and then you had to unlearn that later? But um, it was the only way. It's like. Like learning how to do a bad golf swing and then having to relearn how to do your golf swing in a way that doesn't hurt you long term.
0: So you, so you asked me the question, then you answered the question for me, because yes. it's a
1: classic example.
0: Yes. Yeah. A, any Anyone, anyone anywhere who has ever learned golf has had that happen to them, where they've learned something wrong, they did it, and they had to unlearn it. I mean, everyone, doesn't matter who you are. Tiger Woods has had to relearn his golf swing like dozens of times.
1: Not, not helped by the um, health issues that he's been having. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of the things like, you see for her is that I don't, This is the only way she's learned how to play. This is the way that she's learned how to process the moves in her head. She doesn't know how to play other than this. And unlearning that, I don't know how many years that's going to take, but it isn't going to be easy.
0: Now, question for you. Did you take that Jolene knew that she needed those pills to go to the high school to perform well in chess? Because I took it as like a sort of fortunate set of circumstances for Beth. I thought that Jolene was just, hooking her up like one time. And it just happened to be the time she was on her way out to go play chess.
1: I interpret it as her putting two and two together that she kind of needs these to do what she did. And that there was a conversation that kind of occurred off page or off screen that that maybe gave her a little bit more knowledge into this because otherwise the timing just seemed too hokey coincidental for it. Yeah. Did that just kind of miracle swoop in for that character? At that point you're making Jolene almost more of like a, uh, a, a, a means to an end or a prop rather than an actual character for her just to miraculously show up for the hero's benefit
0: well but we do know that you know Beth was having some withdrawal symptoms so it could have been yes. it could have been Jolene not necessarily giving her the lookout for the chess match it was more of well I saw that you haven't slept right so here you go could
1: that's a fair that's a fair that's a kind of in between the two kind of interpretation so I, th- I think that's possible
0: yep um so she gets to the the high school she goes into a room where there's a bunch of chess sets set up in this sort of u shape i love how this scene is blocked because we get the perspective from beth's back and the chess boards are in tables that are literally stretched all the way around her in a u um so you kind of get the the sense of like wow she's she's going into this huge um scene where she's got to play all of these different chess matches and play in a circle and the 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 spell rings the boys all pour in and spencer did you catch that the boys seem positively pissed from jump street that they were having to play against a nine-year-old girl
1: yeah I, I i did see that and they walk in there like they're wrestlers posing for the match trying to intimidate yep. the opponent kind of thing <laughs> it, it it is it is interesting There are surprisingly few moments we see this of where she gets this kind of opposition to her taking part, because at least least the first two people she's been exposed to are open-minded enough and curious about her enough that they're willing to take what is a bit of an odd person to fit into this game and nourish her up. These guys don't know her from Adam. They're just pissed they're having to play with a nine-year-old, and they feel like it's being insulting to them, and they're just walking in here to give her a clear indication of where they are on this issue
0: hundred percent mean mugging her not liking it but then we see beth she starts to go around the tables and play we can see that her play is very confident which is a scene that or an indication to me anyway that um you know she's not she's not on her heels when she's playing these matches and we get some uh, validation of that in the next scene which is where beth is with uh, dr scheibel and she's kind of debriefing from her experience she has this quote Potential line of the episode quote. What surprised me is how bad they played. They left <laughs> they left backward pawns all over the place and their pieces were wide open for forks. A few of them tried stupid mating attacks, but I took care of them. This boy, Charles Levy, he was supposed to be the best. I had his pieces tied up in 15 moves. I mated him in 6 more with a knight rook combination. <sighs> Mr. Gantz told me I beat them all in an hour and 20 minutes. It felt good. I'd never won anything before. What a great line.
1: It, it's I really have to give a lot of credit to this young girl for playing this role. I don't know how old she actually is. I'm guessing it's probably a Dawson casting and she's older than actually nine. yeah, but yeah, sure she does a really good good job of doing the kind of disassociation this character goes through and in interacting with others, of where she has a constant state of being bored even when she succeeds. of where it's like, yeah, I defeated all of them. they told me it was impressive, but uh, yeah, these chocolates are good. It's just so matter of fact she goes through this. It's a really well well day of doing will. It's a really interesting way of showing her brilliance that she almost has a, a hard of there's almost like an inherent difficulty in interacting with others in a normal human level, because she's so far in advance of that. That coming down to, you know, maintain that kind of basic human conversation has an element of difficulty attached to it and boredom, like you noted.
0: Would you say that this is this is similar to um Spencer being asked, uh, well, how did it go, you know, in court? And you being like, Well, you know, I, I had his brief all tied up like within two paragraphs. It was very simple for me. Very, is this you in the law office just numbing on chocolates, talking about how you kick people's asses in the courtroom. Is that a fair comparison?
1: You know, it's more me crying in the hallway after the hearing, but sure. Yeah. Let's go with this. I'm going to, I'm going to go with that. One. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: but I do like that. Shout out to, uh, to, to Beth though. Uh, this is, this is a good, good bro move on her part. Um, Given the chocolates, Chocolates. given the chocolates to Mr. Shiavel, he can have the rest of them. I like that move. Uh, Especially like it from a nine-year-old. Not a line Like, I think that's really important, right? A nine-year-old who doesn't get these treats very often, doesn't have much to her name, doesn't get much. She still is is willing to give away, you know, the few treats that she has. So I think that's a solid move.
1: It's the orphanage, to the. it you know, really has to. In fact, she's nine already. Nine-year-olds are inherently selfish. They're not declined to share a period as is. But the fact that she also has nothing to her name, like we talked about, a doll would have made her the richest kid in the entire damn orphanage. She's got chocolates here. Those, I'm sure, are valuable currency in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. But it's a demonstration that though she's not ever particularly warm with him, if anything, she's often occasionally more than a little bit condescending with him, she clearly very much cares about Mr. Scheibel and wants him to know that. 100%.
0: Uh, so after that scene with Mr. Scheibel, we cut back to the high school. She's playing the boys again. And this time she's got an audience. And I can tell you this, Spencer. If I was in high school, this high school, I would not be in the chess club. I was not in chess club. <laughs> I was not in chess club. But I will tell you what I would be doing. And that would be watching a nine-year-old girl kick the shit out of all the boys in the chess club. I would be in that audience. No doubt.
1: I, I was having a talk with Bridget, my girlfriend, about this, and we were debating whether this scene was realistic in that element of where she was saying, Man, that's the most unrealistic scene. No way those high schoolers would be in there watching the chess game. What? And I responded in two ways. One, like you said, this isn't a chess game this isn't a series of chess games. This is a performance piece by a grand maestro. That's what we're watching here. We're not watching people play chess, we're watching a nine year old act in a way they shouldn't be capable of doing. Yes. Point number one. Point number two, there's also a bit of a generational element attached to this as well. You go back to like the 1950s, chess was hot shit. We're talking international tournaments that were covered on the front page of the New York Times kind of hot shit. So these kids have been well conditioned from a young age to also view this as an impressive competitive achievement beyond just simply the fact it's a nine-year-old doing it.
0: And I'm going to put in a point three here, and this is a point that you would not naturally think of, Spencer, because I know a little bit about your history in high school. You were not a bully. I... Went through periods of my life as a bully, and I can tell you this: if a nine, year, I would know those boys in the chess club. I would know who they are, and <laughs> I would know that. a nine-year-old girl was kicking the shit out of them. I would be there to witness it because I, they would hear about it later. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to be fair if I was the best friend of one of those guys, I would still be there to give him shit later that he lost to a nine-year-old. Cause that's just what best friends do as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. I would be, well, I'd be, yeah, I'd absolutely be there because I would be like astounded. that This nine-year-old girl was doing this. I feel like I'd be watching something very important. Like I'm going to hear about this girl later, but also, Hey, you know, and in lunch later, I'm going to tell, I'm going to mention to Charles Levy. Hey, <laughs> you're supposed to be so good at chess. You lost in 16 moves. Um, cut back to Beth. And she has gone up to Jolene asking for more vitamins. Beth is, not we're going to call this tweaking right now. Beth is tweaking. Oh,
1: just a bit. Will Jones and Hard.
0: Jones in for those vitamins, and Jolene is not hearing it. She tries to introduce her to this girl, Samantha, but she won't let it go. Finally, Jolene says, I am not trying to talk about that right now. Stop it. Drop it. Then we see Beth go downstairs and take a tool. I thought, when I first watched this, that Beth was going to go down and drink some of that whiskey. I thought she was connecting the sort of, like, hide a drunk thing. No. Not yet. Instead, what she's doing is she's taking a tool from the tool belt of Mr. Shyabul because next time she next she's in class and they're watching a movie, and she gets up to go to the bathroom. Spencer, did you catch which movie they were watching?
1: Uh, that is the Robe, which was one of the uh, early of the kind of biblical epics that Hollywood became really enamored with in the fifties. I think it came out in the early fifties, like um, I think like six years before the more famous Ben Hur came out.
0: Yep. Great call, Beth. Then breaks into the pharmacy. She climbs into the window, takes the pill jar, and starts eating fistfuls oh. of pills. So I'm, watch, I'm watching this with my wife, right? And this scene comes up, and, and Sarah goes, um, "What does she hope to accomplish? Like, what is she? What does she think she's doing here?" And I just turn to her, astounded, and I'm like, "Getting high? Like, what do you? Yeah. What do you think? Like, it didn't occur to her." But I'm like, "She wants to get as high as, as fast as possible." She doesn't know, she doesn't care about potentially overdosing. She's just fistful in her mouth of these. And we have a lot of evidence that Beth Harmon is a drug addict. This is shut the book, chapters written, it's over, it's now canon. She's a drug addict because this isn't just like, oh man, I feel a little off when I don't have them. This is, I need to feel high right now, therefore I'm going to eat 50 of these damn pills.
1: Yeah, in case you know, because I don't, what is the LD fifty on Valium? I mean, she eats enough that it seems like have we reached lethal dose levels of Valium? Yeah, there, yeah, yeah, is She there has a lethal dose. Of yeah,
0: she has. She. There's no way that she didn't have her stomach pumped after this. There's no way. And they may have done it the old school way. They may have just made her gag and like poured a bunch of charcoal down her throat. But like, there, they had to have done something here because otherwise she would have. She would have. She'd have at least been in a coma. She'd been out of it. Um, but as she's eating I love that hallelujah the song is playing in the background yeah
1: <laughs> uh, hallelujah. very funny as two characters uh. <laughs> walk to their execution as they ascend to heaven that's the moment where we're going on here um
0: I did think when I was watching this that we would get you know that, that that there would be like um maybe that maybe it would end with her being rushed to the hospital or something but no the end of the episode is basically um another good moment from beth here beth is so funny so she's taking these handfuls of pills right and then she sets down the jar and she's like she looks back at it she's like nope gonna need the jar too <laughs> it's not I the handfuls the that i've put in my mouth and my pockets. not enough gonna require the whole jar not sure where she thinks the jar is going to be stored i'm not sure she's thought that far in advance but she's going to need the jar
1: obviously in the cubby underneath her bed because that's where her personal possessions go and those are hers now
0: and as she's leaving she's got the whole jar in her arms she turns around to a completely aghast mrs deardorff who catches her seemingly the whole school is there watching her and elizabeth passes out the jar shatters and boom end of episode
1: I'm going to recommend something to her in the future. If you have an opportunity to replay this out again, uh, when Tribune Galio gets Jesus' robe, that's a good time to go for the pills. Don't wait till the last three minutes of the film to go get the pills. Yeah. They're going, you're going to get caught right now. And Just a little, you weren't already when you're taking the entire jar.
0: And a little advice here from your Uncle Lee. Uh, kids out there. Um, if you're stealing pills, um, don't take them all right away. And don't take the jar that they're in. There you go. A little advice from your Uncle Lee. Um, all
1: right. <laughs> I'm really glad we were able to assist kids in this regard. I feel like we really made a difference for them. <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, don't take the jar. They know when you take the jar. Just take a little bit. Right. Um, and, and
1: pick your right moment in the film. Wait until, they're, wait until their eyes are turned. Don't go during the most obvious times. So glad to help.
0: And here's your PSA from Spencer and Lee. Uh, that's the end of the recap. Spencer, any concluding thoughts about the episode before you want to jump into our segments
1: i heard a lot of my friends describe this episode as slow and i would agree that it is but not in a way i found boring in any way it's a build it's willing to take its time there's a lot of scenes which again are very much focused on showing us something rather than telling us what's necessarily going on but for me at least that worked i found it intriguing it got me invested enough to want to know where it goes while at the same time it didn't necessarily have frantic activity but I think from early on, this isn't just going to be, this, this is not that kind of show. Nope.
0: Nope. It certainly isn't. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I did not think this episode would slow. I I did hear some people saying it was slow. I heard a lot of people saying, well, hang in there, you know, wait till you get to the second, third episode. Then it really picks up. I've given that advice about certain episodes, certain shows before. It was not my experience in watching this that i needed to get to the second and third episode to be hooked i was hooked after the first one
1: very much so because again they paint such an intriguing portrait of her and what her brilliance could lead to but we also have so many well done characters that are alongside her between mr scheibel and jolene though beth is clearly going to be the focus of all this they're clearly putting a lot of effort into making those that are around her well realized and believable too in varying degrees
0: mm-hmm Absolutely. All right. Spencer, do you want to jump into our first segment? Best line of the episode? I alone award best line of the episode. If you don't remember how this goes, we will go with um, some nominees from Spencer, some nominees from me, and then I will select it. Spencer, any nominees for best line of the episode?
1: I've got a few. Do you want to do this round uh, round robin back and forth? Or you want me to just go through my list? We can
0: try. Uh, we can try to do it that way.
1: Okay, let's see, how, let's see how we do. Uh, first one for me is one of the early lines of the episode of when Jolene asked her what's the last thing your mom told you. And that close your eyes thing was haunting in a way I feel like we're going to come back to. Like you said, the clear implication from that is her mom was committing suicide and sadly trying to take Beth with her. And I don't know whether Beth has fully processed that yet. I mean, she's nine. She may not even fully understand it entirely. I think she kind of does, though in the sense that she's embarrassed or seemingly doesn't want to share that with other people. So that feels like a bit of a live wire that she still needs to really come to terms with in a way that I don't think she's either had time or necessarily the maturity to do yet. So mm-hmm. that's a, that's an important one for
0: me. Okay. Next one. Just one. I really like uh, great quote. Um, probably will go down, um, in cinematic history is one of the better quotes from any character ever. Jolene, you're all a bunch of fucking cocksuckers. <laughs>
1: Yes, well said. Particularly uh, the moment that it originally comes in and she's like, and this is our school and we're a wonderful Christian institution. You fucking cocksuckers. And that's Jolene. It's so like, funny. This is the background now. This is home.
0: So funny. Uh, what's your next one?
1: Uh, I, similar line happens, I think, a moment before that, but the description of uh, Beth's dad. But I would guess that, uh, like most men who live around here, he was yet another victim of a carefree life. I said that is such a delightful euphemism. That's such an artful way of expressing the thought that she's actually going for. And it's fun that the show almost immediately rebuts it a few scenes later too. Um, that he clearly is absent, but the reasons for that are nuanced in a way that the, the, uh, institution clearly doesn't have a frame of reference for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my next one, I, I think I'm a little farther along, but I'll, I'll do mine. Um, that's not fair. She came in after you. Most of us are lifers. Nobody's going to come for us now. We're too old or too black.
1: That's a rough line. That's a rough line. It's one of the first real acknowledgements of racism we get in this episode, which given this is early 50s in, in Kentucky, and I want to note this as well. This is the least Kentucky orphanage that I could ever possibly imagine. Kentucky yeah, is a has an visit- accent. What the hell? Kentucky has a real distinct accent. We get outside this Catholic university too, so don't tell me they're like training them to be accent neutral. <laughs> no one has an accent on this. Yeah, it's weird. 1950s Kentucky, all of these people would have an accent, yeah. but background. Uh, but yeah, the line itself, it's a good line. It also reflects, I want to see more of Jolene. Right now she's kind of just serving a very supporting role for Beth. She hasn't necessarily been characterized too much other than some of the actions we've seen her do. But that reflects a certain element of pain and resentment that I'll be curious to see if it's explored anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, One for me, I really like this line from Mr. Scheibel, but it's when he tells her to resign. You resign now. It's not a rule, it's sportsmanship. That feels like it's one of the lessons that's going to resonate with her. that, That is a really powerful moment, it's a meaningful moment of not only just teaching her the rules, not only teaching her how you play... But teaching well, the rules of the play, but teaching you truly the character that you bring to the game, the honor associated with the game, the sportsmanship that compels it, that for this to be something that is worthy of play and worthy of respect, you need to treat it that way. That's a lesson that she clearly struggles with. She calls him a cocksucker and runs away. But it's one that I think needs to stick for her to really un- understand and grasp how why this game is treasured by so many. Yep.
0: Uh, next one I've got is you look around. There's going to be some jumpy orphans here the next few days.
1: Yeah, that's that's both a funny one and also a rough one too. Because again, Jolene is the weathered sort, and I the stories she could tell I'm sure would put put your hair on end. Mhm. Uh, uh, another one, Mr. Scheibel, of when his line of when she first defeats him, of when he is clearly a bit begrudging about it, but he tells her you could have beat me sooner and immediately transitions into start teaching her openings and really speeding up the process of her education. Like you said, there's an element of bruised pride in this, but he's too much of an adult and views this as too important to let that wrap up what he's he's experiencing. He immediately transitions into a teaching moment, and that's really a demonstration of a quality teacher. So I like that moment a lot.
0: Uh, Next one for me. What surprised me is how bad they played. They left backward pawns all over the place, and their pieces were wide open for forks. Few of them tried stupid mating attacks, but I took care of them. This boy, Charles Levy, he was supposed to be the best. I had his pieces tied up in 15 moves. I made it up in six more with a knight-rook combination. Mr. Gantz told me I beat them all in an hour and 20 minutes. Felt good. Never won anything before. That's
1: a great line. I love the delivery of the child. One could interpret it as being kind of monotone, but it works better than it is because it really just shows her flat affect that she's carrying through for all this. And yeah, that's a great line. Uh, I got two more. Um Again, I like Mr. But Sh- Mr. Schibel's probably my favorite character so far. So I got a few from him, but like you noted, that line of when she a- she asks him when he gives her the modern chess openings book, she- what does she say? Like, am I good or what, do you think my- what I think? Am I
0: good? The- yeah,
1: yeah. And he looks at her, and it's one of the first moments that he brings emotion to his voice. <laughs> you can just hear the awe that he's care- that he that he views her in of when he says to tell you the. That- tell you the truth of a child you're astounding i love the tone of voice he puts in that i love the look on his face as he expresses that where you can just see almost like the childlike glee and seeing something truly brilliant there before him uh it's a good line
0: yep <clears throat> and uh what's your what's your last one?
1: the oh, last one i just love the flippancy of it eh new state law no for <coughs> kids go go figure
0: very good okay let's do it let's get to Best line of the episode, like so many best line of the episode segments we've done here on Mangum Talks TV, I have an honorable mention. The honorable mention is the quote that I would pick if I'm just telling you my favorite line. But I have a responsibility to the pod, to the audience, to also pick what I think is the most important line of the episode. So, honorable mention, my favorite, winner, the most important. So, honorable mention is... Jolene, how many did you take? Beth, I don't know. Sometimes I skip a day or a bunch of days. Then I take two or three. I like the way it feels. Jolene, I bet you do. You just be careful you don't get too used to that feeling. And then, best line of the episode. Episode one, Queen's Gambit. The openings. To tell you the truth of it, child, you were astounding. Yeah. Had to be that one, right? It was always going to be that one.
1: It, it, it's it's such a powerful line. It's such a heartwarming line, too. Um it really shows how far the two characters have come together, even just the short time we've seen we've seen them um, playing chess.
0: Yep. All right. There we go. That's the first segment down. Best line of the episode. Second segment. Let's go ahead and do best scene of the episode, and then we'll wrap up with Spencer's Wikipedia spiral of the episode. Best scene of the episode. I think I know which one I want to go with. How about we do it this way, Spencer? I'll tell you which one I'm thinking. And you can either either second or um, offer up another for consideration by the entire chamber. You ready?
1: I'm an asshole, so I'm going to disagree with you on principle. So yeah, let's see how this goes. Okay,
0: all right. Well, then we'll have multiple rounds of voting here on the floor. Um, (laughs) I am going to say that my favorite scene was the scene with Mr. Gantz, the first one, where basically uh, Mr. Scheibel, like I said, he's running that show pony. He wants to see if everybody else think she's as good um as he does and i want to do best scene for not not just one i I want to do the entire uh segment there right where you have the introduction you have the first game that he plays um with her but then you all then, then what really drives it home for me is that scene where um she's basically playing both Mr. Scheibel and Mr. Gantz. And she gets up from the scene. She turns around and she plays them both with her back to them. Uh, and then, of course, we wrap up with the doll. And then that cute moment between Beth and Doctor Sh- Mr. Scheibel. Mr. Scheibel kind of gives her like the, huh, I don't know. I know you don't like it, but just give him a thank you kind of thing. Because <laughs> we have a lot of things going on there. We have, you know, Mr. Scheibel, you know, an indication from Mr. Scheibel to the audience of how important smart he thinks that Beth really is. He wouldn't be bringing this guy here if he didn't think she was something special. We get proof positive that she's special. And then we also get proof that these two have a friendship um, that goes beyond just playing
1: chess. I, I will offer you that it is a meaningful moment between characters but sir, you are violating your own rules by which you vote for best moments of episodes here. We have a clear indication in this episode of, some, of a, a repeated motif that I am willing to bet we are going to see brought up again and demonstrated in episodes to come. Fire away. In terms of the in terms of the chessboard on the ceiling of that moving of pieces of her slow enhanced growing understanding of the game as shown through be they hallucinations or imaginations on the ceiling that moment feels like it's one of the more iconic and memorable scenes going forward it's going to wrap up her understanding of the game our audience's appreciation of it and probably a way that she's going given that it's a foundational way of she originally learned the game I feel and willing to bet it's something she's going to continually return to even if she learns different ways of understanding understanding the game i would offer that just as a repeated i'm
0: cool with picking it but it's just it happens so quick in this episode that it's like i'm not sure i would call it like a scene but i mean I, i i everything you said is true that it you know it's obviously extremely important to her uh, because it's how she processes the game and how she actually gets practice, considering the fact that she can't just sit and play chess for eight hours a day. So it is important. Um, I don't know if it's like a scene scene, but, you know, I'm willing to go with it. That's fine.
1: I mean, it's one of the things where I, your scene is more plot important. I think I, my scene I'm offering, I think, is maybe more theme or cinematic important. Yeah, that's fair. we choose to focus on more. I think they've, they serve an interesting complement to each other. Is One is demonstrating to both her and the audience... That she's understanding the game the other one is demonstrating to other people how much she understands about the game and each have their own particular uses
0: yeah yeah very fair All right i'm willing to go with the, the chessboard on the ceiling uh yeah we can do that best scene of the episode uh beth Harmon just whacked out of her mind on those green pills looking up at the ceiling uh playing a little chess with herself late at night we can now move on to what i cannot wait for each week we do these spencer's wikipedia spiral of the week spencer take it away
1: okay i don't know about y'all but i've always known about chess as being this game with a monstrous bit of history attached to it partly because it's an easy way of showing a period piece kind of element of what's what's demonstrate something in the middle ages or what's demonstrated something in the victoria era but they're playing chess it provides a a common lynch point between our modern audience going back into this ancient realm, so we have a bit of a shared element attached to it. But I don't think I ever really understood how old this game is. Like, 1500 years old is what we're talking here. Like, so old that the origins of it are lost in the mists of time kind of thing. Like, the amount of historians that have delved into where chess originated is the Legion, and they don't agree. Like most things, China asserts they invented this and just kind of forgot about it later, like pretty much everything else. But I'm going to buy into, I think, what's the dominant school, was originally pioneered by uh, H.J.R. Murray, a British teacher, and also, oddly enough, the son of the first editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, who back in the early 20th century spent a large portion of his life reading ancient manuscripts, teaching himself friggin' Arabic, so that he could try to find out where this game originally came from. And his conclusions, which, again, seems to be most people agree with now, is that it originally emerged, emerged in the Gupta Empire in northern India, back in the 6th century AD. And it was called at the time in Sanskrit, and I'm going to butcher, like, four languages as I go through the segments, so my apologies to people who actually speak these, but Chaturanga, which literally means in Sanskrit, the four parts of the four divisions, which referred to their time, their understanding of warfare, as being fought in the combination of infantry, cavalry, elephants, and chariots which became the predominant pieces on the board, and which we now refer to as pawns, knights, bishops, and rooks. With the name of the game itself originally appearing in, the epic, in an epic battle story, one of those long-form epic poems, the Gupta Empire maintained regular trade ties with a neighbor, the Sassanid Persian Empire. And as part of those trade and diplomatic connections, including what was an elaborate diplomatic maneuver according to one story of which they basically presented the game as an elaborate taunt that, unless you understand this game, you could ever defeat us which the Persians rapidly understood the game and then defeated the Gupta Empire, so eh, kind of gave them their own seed to their own defeat there. But in Persia, the game really started to form a lot more of the things that we now modern recognize, including a lot of even, even the terminology. They refer to it as uh, uh, Chen Trang, and we get a lot, of the, a lot of the words, like, say, check or checkmate. Those are odd words in the English language. They don't really seem to serve any other purpose to us. That's part of the reason is that they come from ancient Persian of where the the word for king was shaw, which became, in more European form, check. And the word for the phrase, the king is helpless, which is what you would say when you had the king captured, was shamat, checkmate. So that's where the terms originally come from. The pieces also started to uh, develop in much more modern form, where we have the soldier, the horse, the elephant, again, they kept on referring to the elephant, which later became the bishop, uh, which was a decidedly weaker piece back then, the chariot, later became known as the rook, And the new piece they introduced, the Counselor, which, you know, was a piece that always just hung out next to the king, and was really incredibly weak, and no one really ever understood why they invented that piece, because it didn't really do anything, but, you know, clearly not a piece we need to worry about for later. The objective of the game at the time was you either could win two ways. You either could win by killing all of your opponent's other pieces, or by taking their king. And it's a testament to how different the game was then, is that the most common way to win, for centuries was you by, like, slow trench warfare eliminate all of your opponent's pieces. That's how almost all games ended, and as you can guess, it made for a very long game. You talked about your two-hour games as being incredibly slow. That was the norm. That would have been a short game by the standards then, just because that's how they played. There weren't really elaborate moves or rapid rapid endeavors. Um, Um... you're won in a much more slow, methodical manner, because it was really meant to be more of like a war treatise kind of thing. You were learning a certain philosophy of warfare and how battles and wars were actually fought, rather than it being as much of like a competitive game. Now, we now view Iran, uh, uh, the modern term for Persia, as being, you know, a predominantly Muslim country. We're going far enough back in the past that the Sassanid Persian Empire was friggin' Zoroastrianism, you know, like, early monotheistic kind of religion uh, kind of thing. And it wasn't until the Muslim invasion, where at the end of the great Roman-Persian wars, the Persian Empire was horribly weakened by basically overcommitting itself and trying to fight Rome, and left itself open to the human tidal wave that was the armies of the Prophet Muhammad coming in. They conquered Persia, and as a result of that, as they did so many other places where the Muslim conquest reigned, they took ideas, they took new thoughts, and with abundant curiosity and creativity, they spread them wherever they went, by both trade and military efforts. And so they, for the first time, started spreading chess into modern Europe. Now, we got a few changes from them. For one, they couldn't pronounce the, word, the letters. It, the letters weren't used in Persian. So they pronounced the, the game shatranj because they couldn't, they never really a CH noise or really even an NG noise. Um, they also, due to certain elements of, of uh, Islam belief, Islamic belief, made the pieces much more abstract. There is a serious concern in about Islam about idolatry, about portraying certain images or graven images, particularly with respect to the prophets we see nowadays. Um, but the pieces originally from the uh, Indian and the Persian game were incredibly elabor- elaborately carved. They were meant to very carefully resemble each of the units that were on the board. It's from the Muslim conquest, the pieces became decidedly more abstract that we see in their current form because of their discomfort with idolatry. But like I said, they, the early years of the Muslim conquest, the first hundred years, were of incredible expansion. They. Spread from a very isolated element of Arabia to conquer the Persian Empire, the bulk of the Roman Empire, and extend all the way over to conquer friggin Visigoth Spain as they as they went across and conquered all of North Africa. And it's that expo, it's that conquering, it's that trade that started sending chess into Europe by various means, came into the Byzantine Empire, the Roman, the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, where they called it Zatikion, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. But the main influence that it had was the conquering of Spain, of when one forgets that for about 700 years, um, Spain was one of the hearts of the Muslim world, Al-Andas, they called it, the Moorish Arabic conquest that lasted from the early 700s, all the way through the late 1400s, 1492, if I got that correctly. And it's in Spain in particular, that chess started to develop into a much more modern form. And as you got into Europe, it's much more when we start calling it chess rather than any other name, including just even by the basic element that once it arrived in Europe, they suddenly started using a checkerboard for the first time. Previously, they did not use a checkerboard, and the board was much less standardized. Even still had some issues with standardization going forward that we'll talk about. One of the fun conflicts that chess had, though, when it first came into Europe, was that, similar to some, like, uh, as I mentioned, Muslim concerns about uh, idolatry, the Christian church, the Catholic church, hated chess. They hated it. They viewed it as just inherently leading to gambling and vice and all kinds of other things. Checks out. And there were a lot of, sorry, say that again? Checks out. Yeah. And, <laughs> I was just
0: yeah, saying a check. Yeah, I was, I was just, make, making a joke that know, that's a I, stupid I, thing to be worried took about. took
1: me a second, but I got you. <laughs> but, you know, you and I we very much associate chess as being the ultimate gambling game. There's just nonstop chess games going in Vegas. <laughs> but that's how the, the the Catholic Church viewed it. And so there were a lot of efforts to, not really, not really, you know, by the Pope, but a lot of local efforts to ban the game. Like uh, King Louis the Louis the in France in the late in the late twelve hundreds banned the game in the entire country. The Archbishop of Canterbury up in up in England uh, prevented any of his acolytes, any members of the church, from playing the game because they were starting to just gamble constantly while playing it and uh, neglect their duties because they were so into the game. Um, so a lot of these efforts originally occurred. During this period though, we also see a lot of chess developing into its much more modern form of where I described the pieces and they all had different names, but they all also had different moves. The queen, as I said originally, was originally referred to as, you know, like the vizier, or the counselor, was incredibly weak. It had the same moveset of the king. It could basically just move one set in each direction. Didn't have much use. It was kind of an odd piece for the, for the person to introduce into the game. In Spain and, and, and in the combination of England during this period, a new rule developed that was designed to massively speed up the game of where suddenly the queen became a goddamn superhero that could fly around the board in all directions as far <laughs> as she wanted. And the purpose of this was people realizing, okay, we're going to, m- m- coffee shops were actually something that developed in uh, Alain in Spain during this period. It was a very much of a way for intellectuals and everything else to hang out. And nobody really wanted to hang out in your coffee shop, just sitting there for two hours playing chess. You wanted a faster game. Same thing developed in the Christian world as well. So there were elements over the years to develop this. And starting in the late 1400s, we get what was referred to by its detractors as the Mad Queen game. Or, the direct translation, chess of the enraged lady. That's how they were referring to this thing. Where it caught people off guard because it suddenly changed the game from being this methodical slog mm-hmm. into a game of maneuver, of rapid, aggressive gestures that, that were designed for the first time to make checkmate the primary goal. Whereas previously, it was utter eradication in a military fashion that we were, people were aiming for. Similar thing that happened at the same time is also the bishop, which at the time had no uniform name. Again, it was originally called the elephant in the, uh, in, in, um, the Arabic, Iranian, Arabic, Persian, and uh, Indian version of the game. When it came to Europe, they referred to it as either the bishop, the gesture, the fool, or the camel for reasons. I think it's because uh, the uh, very abstract piece that they got from um, the Muslim world had that kind of just domed top. And so some people thought that looked like a bishop's hat. Some people thought it looked like a little jester's cap. Other people thought it looked like a camel's hump. There were a lot of different ways of interpreting what the hell that piece was because apparently nobody bothered to ask. But either way, they decided to make a piece which previously could only move uh, two two moves diagonally. Suddenly, again, could fly around the board anywhere it wanted diagonally. The goals of these, again, were to speed chess up, and to make it a much more way you could wrap up games in just a matter of moves, because suddenly, taking the king was practical. It was something you could reasonably do, because you had these super pieces that could pull it off. Ironically, despite the fact that this was largely driven, they think, particularly the Mad Queen, why that piece in particular became powerful, was that suddenly, several during that period, several very powerful queens in real life came about, particularly in Spain, uh, Queen Isabella of Spain, or... Um, In England and France, Eleanor of Aquitaine or Blanche of Castile. These were very powerful women that suddenly appeared and were dominating the kind of political discourse. And so there's a thought among certain historians that the queen became powerful in recognition of the fact that queens in real life were becoming really powerful. The possible unintentional side effect of this, though, was that where previously women, particularly in the Muslim world, were regularly playing chess in the cafes and and hanging out with men. It was viewed as a more equal game. As a result of the game getting more exciting and aggressive, there suddenly became a kind of a popular belief that it was no longer appropriate for women, because they couldn't handle that kind of, you know, active, aggressive sport. So despite the fact that the main female piece on the board suddenly became, you know, friggin' Wonder Woman, women were now being phased out of the game because it was no longer viewed as appropriately feminine. And it sadly took a very long time to get out of that mindset. It's notable, you know, we, you know, chess is a popular game nowadays. Millions of people play it each year. But it's a demonstration of just how popular it, it was in Europe for now hundreds of years. Here, that when the printing press came about in England, in England, the first two books that were published in English that were printed on a printing press in English, the first was a translation of the Trojan War, you know, going back to friggin' Homer. The second was a guide to chess. That's the level of chess focus that people had. Wow. And it's this pop It's this publishing of books that became really integral for just the widespread of chess, not only just in, you know, learning it from your friends, but now you could actually pick a book off a store and learn about this whole new game so that you could play with others. And as I said, some of the earliest books were published about chess, but one of the most important people in that earlier era was a man by the name of François-André Danican Philidor, a French composer uh, in the early and mid-1700s known wildly for 50 years of his life of being the best player of chess in the world. Incredibly skilled guy, also wrote some very memorable pieces of music, but is probably one of the most influential people in the history of chess, because he was one of the first people to ever write down the idea of chess theory. We talked about in this episode, the Book of Modern Chess Openings, which was originally written by two British authors in, I think, 1911, and it's gone through like 15 editions since. In 1749, Mr. Philidor, wrote down what he referred to as the analysis of chess. It is now in its 100th edition. That's how fundamental this book is. This guy, for the first time, wrote about chess as more than just a casual game you play while you're drinking coffee. He wrote about it as something that could be analyzed, as something that could be pondered, as something that could be planned, as something far more meaningful than just just a casual bit of entertainment. He's also one of the ones that famously wrote that pawns are the souls of chess. Pawns are the soul of chess. An incredibly influential line that's really guided a lot of understanding of how the game is to be played forward. Is that previously people viewed as pawns, because it was coming out of military strategy, as being just that, as pawns, as soldiers that served no purpose. Suddenly through his analysis, people started to see pawns as a means of actually building and framing your overall plan and structure for the whole game. And that really stuck thereafter. Now, that was again in the 1700s. In the, by the time of the 19th century, though, because of increased international communication, particularly international travel, we start to see the real formalization of competitive play. And I want to point this out, that over the course of the years I've described, chess was not uniform. The rules, the names, even the friggin' board varied by country, by region, by city. It was really just, you stepped down and you kind of relearned the game as you played, just based on what the individual formalizations of, formal, uh, formulations of it were. One of the big things that made start, that started to make chess more uniform was the introduction of a uniform chess set. And again, I've described a history that dates back to the friggin' 600s. The first uniform chess set was patented in 1849. That's how long it took before we started to get the, even the uniform pieces. The pieces that we have right now are referred to as the Staunton pattern pieces because a British, uh, a British game maker who started, really, first, uh, really first started to mass-produce these was by the name of Nathaniel Cook. And when he patented this uniform chess set, the leading chess champion of the day, Howard Staunton, endorsed it and suggested that let's start using this. It'll make it simpler. We don't have to relearn everything or learn each person's individual formulations or even how the pieces look. So the pieces could look entirely different. And that stuck. Some more thing. Chess clocks, which are, you know, integral in terms of competitive play, first didn't come about until 1861. So a lot of these rules were really being formalized. And still, even in these 1800s, was still going on. But one thing I really liked that you described is you described your play as being very aggressive, very attacky, very much, I'm gonna get in, I'm gonna win in a few moves, or I'm gonna lose in the same period. Pretty accurate summary of how you play?
0: 100%, yep, exactly how I play.
1: You, sir, would fit so well in what was referred to in this era, and throughout most of the original few hundred years of chess in Europe as the romantic era of chess, of where it was a philosophy of, of live strong, Die quick and leave a pretty corpse style of play. It was aggressive. It was sweeping. It was exciting. Your objectives were to just get in there, lose as many pieces as you can, and just win by the sheer grit of your sacrifice. And that was the dominant era of play, partly because, again, most of the play during this period was two people either just sitting in, a, sitting in a bar, or a few other friends watching a few people play. They wanted it to be exciting. They wanted it to be quick. They wanted it to be aggressive. They've made these pieces super powerful for that purpose, and damn well they were going to do it. An example of that is what's now referred to as the Immortal Game. No idea how it got that name, but it's memorable. Of where in 1851, during the first international competition in London, two of the chess greats during that period, Adolf Anderson and Lionel Kieseritzky, were during an off period. They weren't even at the tournament. We were just in a cafe drinking tea, because, you know, England, tea, not coffee. Sure. Uh, and they decided, you know what? let's play a game while we're here. You know, just a fun game between us. We haven't really, haven't really competed in the tournament. Let's just have a fun game. And this game became just, it's referred to as the immortal game because it's one of the first real published moments. If we the moment after the game were done, they both realized that was brilliant. And both immediately went to the press and had the game telegraphed around the world. And with the modern, del- modern development of telegraph, it was one of the first games that everybody was suddenly exposed to. But it's a very memorable part of the romantic era Because Anderson won, because in rapid order he sacrificed his bishop, both rooks, and his queen in the exchange for only three pawns by his opponent, but through that colossal, quick, aggressive sacrifice, won the game. As you noted, losing your queen in, like, the first 20 moves, you usually stop. This guy lost four of his leading attack pieces during that period for the purpose of setting up a win. While trading basically nothing, what did he, but that was viewed as just the ideal play of the period. What did he just
0: like corner the king somehow? It, was like, it had to be had to be placement, right?
1: It had to be. It was very much placement, but it was very much an aggressive style of where you were just so thoroughly beating your opponent with aggressive moves. It was knocking them out of position and catching them off guard. Yeah, position. Or the other guy was it, just kind yeah, of yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it's that note about position it, where chess started to change. Of where again. This was the Romantic Era, it was all built around attack, it was all about aggressive tactics of killing your opponent's pieces. But with games like the Immortal game, we started to see a shift, and that became the move to what you noted as positional chess, and that was embodied by the first world champion of Wilhelm Steinitz, uh, who favored positional chess, he favored the closed game, he despised unnecessarily aggressive tactics, he viewed them as fl- flashy and unnecessary. And with his role of being the first World Chess champion, of winning the first international tournament, he massively helped solidify the game. With his international tournament and the rules that were set up, the rules have basically not significantly changed since. There have been minor changes with respect to tournament play. There's even been some aggressive pushes by some grand champions to change other aspects that were rejected, including Bobby Fischer that I'll probably mention in a later episode. Um, one example of a, a rule that was introduced a couple years back, it was like the first significant rule change in several years, was that if you have an electronic device like a mobile phone and if it chimes during a tournament, you automatically lose. That's the kind of like mild rule changes that have happened since. Nothing really about pieces anymore. That really became solidified once it became much more of an international competition. Right. And that developed even more into the next era following pistol chess, what's called hypermodernism. where chess not only became about international competition it became about geopolitical competition suddenly it was nations staking for dominance with respect to the game and in that regard the golden bears the golden gods were the soviets and the russians thereafter where from a period from 1927 through 2006 they held every single world championship title but two of them every single world champion except with two key exceptions were either Soviet or thereafter Russian. It's as a result of the ultimate success of the, so- of, of the Russian and Soviet school. Now, as said, it was a school that had some common similarities. For it, it was very much about controlling the initiative. Whether you were on, whether you were playing second or whatever, it was built around you controlling the momentum of the game and never losing it and also heavily built around Sicilian defense in that regard. But that's not to say that the champions themselves were just monolithic. They weren't all of the exact same play style. They wouldn't, they'd been easy to defeat if they were. They were actually remarkably varied in terms of favoring either positional or dynamic or attacking chess, each one coming in different ways and often directly surprising their opponents with their level of diversity that they could bring to bear. As said, there were a few exceptions during that period. Famously, Bobby Fischer was not human in a variety of ways. Um, but largely the Russians dominated this. From Alexander Alekhine to Garry Kasparov, they were controlling the sport. Until two things kind of happened. One, the rise of computers. Um, I'll go into another episode of greater detail on this, but with IBM's Deep Blue defeating Garry Kasparov in 1997, we had a bit of a shift in mindset when it came to, you know, what was an understanding of the dominance of the game, of where things immediately started to move to a much more, Mathematical understanding of where it was built on repetition. It was built around almost a, well, I said, a proof-based understanding of the game, which had already been developing through hypermodernism. But when computers now started to dominate, it heavily shifted more in that direction. Also, we saw an increase in the rise of the international nature of the game. Of when the um, one of the so, uh, back in 2006, when the last Soviet champion was named world champion, there the next year the winner was from India. I Sadly, I cannot pronounce his name. It is very long. But it showed again that chess was now becoming a game of the world rather than a particular countries to dominate. As said, said Indian champion was later defeated by the current greatest player in the world, Magnus Carlsen from Norway, who stands, at least by sheer chess rating, as the highest rated player in history and possibly one of the strongest players to ever live. But it's been fascinating for me to explore just how far chess has come from its ancient origins to the present moment, and it's still very impressive to see how much of an influence it has. For a game that was originally played as a matter of teaching children war strategy, now it's one of the lead competitive games in the world in a way that probably will keep on going for hundreds of years to come. But that is a brief description on the history of the, well, the history of chess, and from here we have so much further to talk about, but I will save those for later episodes.
0: And... Spencer, you did not disappoint. I knew that picking this show would give you ample opportunity to not just bring back Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the Week, but to bring it back in full force. And you did, my friend. I think you did 20 minutes there. I think that was a solid 20 minutes on the history of chess. Thank you for that, Spencer. It's exactly what I was hoping for. And in future weeks, I'm sure we'll get into... More history of chess Maybe some into the the individual uh, Play styles or Particular movements, I think there's a lot of meat on that But a lot of things to address But for now, we are done with our Review of the first episode Of Queen's Gambit, the opening uh, really enjoyed it We'll be trying to do these About every week There as said There are seven episodes And we're going to cover All seven um, So I'm looking forward to Taking that journey With you Spencer Check out our other pods On the Mangum Talks Podcast channel You have Mangum Reads You have the aforementioned Pottering around A chapter by chapter Reread of the Harry Potter series We have the now defunct GOT Got questions podcast Where we reviewed Game of Thrones episodes And then also check out A um, few lesser known podcasts On the Mangum Talks Podcast channel Mangum Laughs Mangum Talks Hoops And the newly newly premiered mangum watches which is where a bunch of us get together and we watch movies and we talk about it a lot of fun but for now that is everything for uh, our coverage of episode one of the queen's gambit we'll see you next week thanks everybody see you